Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Atwood Unleashed 129 with a special emphasis on the news about King Charles. I've been quoting Nostradamus the last few nights, and I looked through my book collection, and I've actually got the very book that I was um, finding bits of information out online was in my collection. And there's a section here about the abdication of King Charles. So we are going to be getting to some of that. Prince Harry, he's already gone back to LA. We're going to touch on some of the news. Have you been following this, Stephen? Not on purpose, but since Sky News seems committed to sending me a push notification about every six minutes, I am uh, fully up to date, luckily. And what do you think about Harry coming in? Do you think that was a good thing to support his father or do you think it was a, he kind of dominated the publicity there? Absolutely dominated the publicity. And I, I think, like, I suppose the dignified and kind of stoic supporty thing to do would to have not been announced the fact that he was traveling. There was no need to do that at all other than for sort of column inches. He could have come and supported his dad, gone home, and we could have been none the wiser. So I don't, I don't really understand why he's kind of took a large section of the limelight of his dad's, uh, you know, uh, cancer battle. He's, and he, he wasn't here particularly long. I think, I think King Charles is colonoscopy or whatever probably lasted longer than harry's visit <laughs> to be fair so it just it all seems a bit strange <laughs> yeah indeed i mean the latest article says prince harry heads home after just 24 hours in the uk duke arrives at heathrow a day after meeting king for 45 minutes in london following the shock cancer diagnosis and without meeting william or kate I mean, let's it's say... Like a, nearly a 10-hour flight, isn't it? Just for... Yeah. Yeah, British Airways Direct from LAX. It's it's uh, It can be around 10 hours, yeah. But I'm just trying to put myself in the shoes of that family. So if I had a brother and I'd fallen out with him and then my dad suddenly said he's got cancer, I think it would be a good time to try and reconcile with my brother to try and boost my dad's spirits because you need that positive psychological mind frame to maximize your chances of survival that's a really good point and you you think something as big as this would kind of cut through any problems they have on a personal level although have you ever tried to been around someone when they're arranging a wedding and it's getting all family members into one room and you find out one person's not speaking to the other and the other person can't be on the same table as another person kind of feels like that but the i suppose the chess version given they're all royals yeah, these family feuds run, certainly run deep and uh, they've gone for a very long time. All yeah. right, so on, on the uh, themes of the royal family, the first two guests in Atwood Unleashed, we've got Norman Baker. He's coming on at six in approximately 10 minutes to talk about the latest news about the royal family. If you're not familiar with Norman, he's a former MP, author, and political commentator. His book, And What Do You Do?, delves into the shady financials of the royal family and the many dealings they do behind closed doors for the good of themselves, and not Great Britain. 6.30 to 7, we've got another channel favourite coming on. He absolutely smashed it on his recent podcast here. I'm talking George the Giant Slayer who is a YouTuber and pop culture commentator. His previous video went viral, and he's going to drop in my to discuss King Charles's diagnosis. 
and whether the infighting between royal family members will stop. Then at seven, Stephen is taking over. Yeah, from seven, my first guest of the evening is Professor Philip Goff. Uh, Philip is a philosophy professor at Durham University in the UK, where he has spent most of his time trying to work out the ultimate nature of reality. No big deal, just the ultimate nature of reality. Uh, his recent book, Why? The Purpose of the Universe, explores whether panpsychism can offer a kind of middle way between traditional belief in God and secular atheism. Really looking forward to that one. Uh, then from 7.30 till 8, my second guest is Dr. Natalie Martinek. Uh, Dr. Martinek is an ex-systems biology and cancer researcher turned narcissism hacker. Uh, consultant and independent medical culture researcher. She is a highly attuned observer who became acutely alive to the fact that toxic behaviours metastas uh, metastasize, rather, just like the cancer tumours that she was studying so closely. Uh, her book, entitled The Little Book of Assertiveness, provides practical strategies and scripts for responding to dominating, controlling and discriminatory behaviours without comp compromising the relationship or one's values. Uh, so, so tonight she'll be discussing how social activism looks a lot like narcissism and how to survive in a narcissistic society. And then I believe we switch over to local, Sean. Yeah, and you've got the first guest there. Yeah, so from 8 o'clock, I'll be opening up the local section of the show with Ernest Scheider, uh, who is a senior correspondent for Reuters covering the green energy transition and critical materials, as well as author of the forthcoming book, The War Below, Lithium, Copper and the Global Battle to Power Our Lives. Uh, he has previously covered the US shale oil revolution, politics and the environment, and held roles at the Associated Press and the Bangor Daily News. Quite a lot of credentials there. Uh, and then from 8.30 to 9, I'll be joined by TV and radio commentator and host of X Uncensored, uh, Charlie Sansom. He'll be joining us again on Atwood Unleashed. Uh, during the interview, he will be breaking down whether the UK has a problem with immigration and the policies that need to be in place to keep the country safe. Uh, big topics, them I mean, in light of some recent headlines. Grief, you do get over a range of subjects, Stephen, in that great. period. From 9 to 10, investigative journalist and podcaster Brad Binkley is on the show for the first time. He co-hosts the Propaganda Report with Monica Perez, who we had on at the start of the year. The Propaganda Report podcast offers the drive time news blast with brad pulling back the curtain on mainstream propaganda on tonight's show he's doing a deep dive into hunter biden and the ongoing cases that are bringing a dark shadow over the biden family all right so the first guest then is going to be norman baker i left off we were talking about how harry is no longer in the country he Arrived just before 2 p.m. And he, he was on board British Airlines Flight 269 due to leave at 3.05 p.m. Getting him back in Los Angeles at 6.30 p.m. local time. I mean, it's not he... like he had to get back for work, is it? <laughs> I, just... I mean, they paid him millions to do podcasts for Spotify. And they couldn't even get off their asses and interview people. I mean, most <laughs> normal mortals would be so appreciative of getting a multi-million pound deal from Spotify. You would literally 
and and to have massive celebs spoon fed to you to interview, you would do a bit of research. You get your homework done. You get there on time. You get those interviews done. They couldn't even do that, Stephen. I, it, with the full might of Spotify behind you, I, I, all you'd need to do is turn up. They'd probably you'd probably get prepped ahead of time. They'd do all the audio engineering. But there'd be no sound check, nothing. You just turn up in a room for an hour. Off you pop back home to your Hollywood <laughs> mansion. Yeah, it's a it's a nice gig that if you can get it. So indeed, it was a ten-hour flight from LA. He arrived at the Royal Residence at 2.42 p.m., which I believe was Clarence House, where I've actually been a, a fundraiser for Prisoners Abroad, which is a magnificent uh, house with all kinds of paintings, um, before spending around 45 minutes with Charles. They had a brief meeting before the King and Camilla were driven to Buckingham Palace, where a helicopter was waiting to take them back to Sandringham in Norfolk. The Duke is not believed to have seen his brother William, or sister-in-law Kate, who is still recovering from her abdominal surgery and on extended leave. So Harry flew more than 5,000 miles yesterday from LA to London after his father informed him of the diagnosis. It was their first formal meeting in person since Queen Elizabeth II's funeral in September 2022. Uh, the prince did attend Charles's coronation at Westminster Abbey in May last year, but was not seen interacting with the newly crowned king and queen. And I started the broadcast out showing that I do indeed have this book in my collection. And I'll read a little bit to Stephen and we'll get his thoughts. So on page 114, and this is a, an interpretation by Mario Redding, um, it's called The Abdication of Charles III of England. It's quatrain 10, forward stroke, 22 and it says because they disapproved of his divorce a man who later they considered unworthy the people will force out the king of the islands a man will replace him who never expected to be king so there's a theory Stephen <laughs> that you know the divorce from from die has established some bad karma here which is sabotaging his popularity with the British public. And there's a theory that the illness now could be used to pass the crown to William, which might boost the popularity of the royal family. What, 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 what do you think about any of that? Well, there's a lot to work with there, Sean, so thank you. Um, I don't think the British public has an attitude towards divorce that they perhaps did in the 80s. I don't know if you remember at the time, to be fair, after he divorced Diana, Diana was pretty much a villain in the newspapers. They vilified her rather than him. Headline after headline, chasing her around for a, you know, quote unquote party lifestyle. And obviously when she died, she became some sort of saint in that, in the eyes of the nation. Uh, the second thing as well, I think if William became king, that wouldn't be an unexpected man or however they termed it. Uh, that would just be business as, as usual, wouldn't it? But there is a theory that because he doesn't expect it so soon, it is unexpected because he's saying he wants to spend time with his kids. He does not want the crown right now. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's perfectly possible that illness will force him out of royal duties to step down. Perhaps. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't think anyone cares about the fact he got divorced from Diana anymore. Maybe. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. How do you feel about this prediction? 
Well, let's look at what <laughs> Mr. Re Mr. Redding's um, interpretation of this is. This quatrain will come as no surprise to the British people and has wide implications. The preamble is that Queen Elizabeth II will die circa 2022, which came true, at the age of around 96, five years short of her mother's term of life. Prince Charles will be crowned in her stead and become king of the islands. The implication here being that he is no longer king of the other regions in the world over which his mother reigned, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, etc., which will have, in the interim, become republics. Prince Charles will be 74 years old in 2022 when he takes over the throne but the resentment held against him by a certain proportion of the British population following the divorce from Diana. It might not necessarily be the divorce that the resentments are coming from. It might be the fact that she died and circumstances around that. Um, these resentments uh, still persist. The pressure on him is so great and his age so much against him that Charles agrees to abdicate in favor of his elder son, Prince William. Now, let me just see when this interpretation was written, um, just to get an idea. So, 2023. 2020, um, 2006. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, so this was writ first um, in, printed in 2006. Did the, the Queen the, die in the, 2022, or was it last year? Is it that's time flown by that quick? I think I think yeah he's, he's correct. The last print run was 2015. So for Charles to come out with the big C right now does tie in strongly to what is being interpreted here, which is quite spooky. Sure, but just to put my skeptical hat on, <laughs> Captain Pushback here, uh, the prediction that someone in their late 90s might die is not a particularly extraordinary claim the claim that you know somewhat that her son will take over on the throne is not particularly extraordinary claim we'll we'll see we'll see what happens uh going forward but no it's interesting to be sure there's another theory that the unexpected person is actually prince harry that fate intervenes on the side of william's family and, you know, I wouldn't want to say anything uh, potentially that could happen there that tempting fate um, that could, could be very dark scenarios, let's just say, um, whereby that whole family is no longer able to take the crown, that side of it, and then it would go straight over to William. You know I mean, what, Harry, being Harry, an, Harry. an unexpected man, Ryan Reynolds, that would be deeply <laughs> unexpected. That would be outright insane. That I'd, Nobody would see that coming. That's unexpected. The idea that one of the king's sons might become king seems pretty unextraordinary to me. Uh, but I, I grant you that it seems even more unlikely that Harry will be the next king for a multitude of reasons. So if that happens, I might have to start taking this Nostradamus stuff a little bit more seriously. <laughs> so the summary of this page of this book... It says, King Charles III of England, weary of the persistent attacks on both himself and his second wife, in the 25 years since the death of his first wife, Princess Diana, decides to abdicate in favour of Prince William. And we are waiting for Norman Baker 
to come in. And while we are waiting... Maybe he's just been made king. That would be most unexpected. Norman Baker is probably slightly (laughs) less... (laughs) Oh, no, slightly more extraordinary than Ryan Reynolds, given his his public output on the monarchy. (laughs) Can you imagine what Prince William is going through right now? Because... They, they, they have to get ready for every possible scenario. So they must be giving him the proper drill as to if news came out that Charles died, um, you know, God bless him with the cancer, hope, hope that he doesn't. But if the news did, Prince William's got to be getting really prepared right now for yeah. worst case scenario. His his life and mentality will have been completely changed by that cancer diagnosis because if we're going to be you know a matter of fact about it and uh, no disrespect but he's 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 uh, some failed cancer treatment away from the throne now uh, that that's what it is is for him and I mean he's quite he's still young isn't he he's in his forties uh, now so uh, if not late thirties I'm not sure uh, so I mean it, yeah it's it's interesting because uh, you know Prince Charles seems to have been one of the longest reigning heirs to the throne so much in fact that I may have just called him Prince Charles then I can't remember <laughs> can't, I can't get out of that habit that's how long the Queen was on the throne that I still slip up and call King Charles Prince Charles uh, and he might turn out to be the shortest serving king I'm not a history like expert so maybe someone else has, has, has got that record in the bag already uh, but yeah, I mean, to, I'll be honest, to me, this kind of thing kind of just, you know, moves closer and closer and closer to the abolition of the royal family. I mean, I'm not saying I'd, I'd particularly call for that or, you know, uh, campaign for that, perhaps, but it just seems to be losing relevancy with the British public. I think more and more people are realising what a kind of undemocratic system it is, uh, you know, uh, all the things that... Uh, you know, uh, liberal progressives claim to care about hereditary wealth and, and power and things like that, un- undemocratic. Uh, so I just don't know if, the, if there's going to be any appetite going forward for whoever comes through. It seems like a lot of what was the royal family died uh, with the late queen. Well, don't you think then, because of the movement to get rid of the royal family, the momentum there, don't you think that... The counter to that is giving it to William as fast as possible to capitalize on his popularity. That you know what I thought you was going to say then. I thought you was going to say that because of the anti-monarchy sentiment rising, then perhaps that'll force the abdication uh, of Charles quicker, uh, which would tie into Nostradamus again. But yeah, th- that's an even better point about William because I-, I do tend to find, in terms of public relation, he has a lot of. Uh, respect from the British public for sure people tend to like a royal who's stoic, dignified keeps out the headlines as much as possible does their duties uh, and represents our country in a, in a dignified manner and that William seems to fit that bill completely in contrast to, to Harry of course so I, I think as someone who would represent the country I imagine William would be, would be very popular for that role Yes, indeed. Um, you know, in the recent, se- have you watched the most recent season of The Crown? I, I think I've seen it on in the background here and there. The missus loves it. It's like it's like crack. <laughs> my missus that show. Yeah, it's always on in the background. 
he comes across as very likable, William, and and Kate does as well. It's uh, quite a cute uh, fairy tale romance story that they've inserted in there. How true it is, I don't know, but um... I wonder if the I wonder the royals must tune into that to watch it. Just like let's see what I'm doing this week, kind of mentality. Your ego would demand that you watch it, wouldn't it? You couldn't ignore something that big. I can imagine them, them obviously annoy, you know, ignoring news head gossip but i like an award-winning multi-million pound netflix series watched by millions you'd have to check that out for sure yeah so Stephen, i'll let you go and i'll continue to cover the royal news while i wait for norman baker and we will see you around seven ish then cheers my friend see you soon take care thank you all right so going over more closely the story about Harry's visits, um, very short indeed. And many people are wondering why the meeting between Harry and his dad was so brief. And the official reason being told today is that it was because Charles was tired from a procedure on Monday. You know, I've had people tell me today that Harry had to go through some kind of legal um, briefing as well before the meeting, which is understandable after everything that's gone on. Uh, they said the King, 75, and the Queen, 76, are coping magnificently, adding, if you didn't know what was the matter, you wouldn't have any idea that he had any condition at all. So there's a lot of positivity being banded around but we're all being left in the dark as to what type of cancer it is what type of treatment is being undergone and how serious it is and you know the polls that we've been doing with you guys this week most of you have been indicating that you think it's a lot more serious than the media is letting on so we'll do a poll now can you please put a one in the chat if you think King Charles's condition is serious, way more serious than what is being told in the media. Put a two in the chat if you think everything's going to be hunky-dory. We can beat this thing in this day and age. And he's going to bounce back with a vengeance and live as long as his mum. Oh, dear. Not looking good for Charles. We've got nearly all... Ones coming in, a couple of twos there. Ones, 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 ones. Yeah, so I understand. He's got to think positive. Your brain has an internal pharmacy, and you can release the healthy chemicals, the good stuff, by thinking positive to combat the big C and power to him for doing so. So article come out a couple of hours ago while there may have been a thaw between father and son harry's trip did not include a reunion with his brother prince william there had been hopes that it would have been a chance for the brothers to salvage the strained relationship william who's now 41 has remained focused on tending to his wife kate who is recovering from her abdominal surgery and is taking extended leave from public duties until after Easter. 
But the Prince of Wales returned to public work today, carrying out an investiture at Windsor Castle in the morning before later attending a gala for the London Air Ambulance Service in the evening. Well, that's a bit of a contradiction, isn't it? He could only spend a short amount of time with his son, but he's doing all this work today. Something doesn't quite add up there. William is expected to speak about his father's cancer diagnosis for the first time. All right, so that was William, not Charles. Last night, it was claimed that Harry would have gladly accepted a reunion with his brother William, but instead has spent a night in a London hotel. Oh, dear. Harry was pictured being driven into Clarence House yesterday, did not spend the night in any royal residence, with him being effectively homeless on U.S. soil since his eviction from Frogmore Cottage last year. The Duke is now making his way back to the, his Montecito home in California, where he will be reunited with his wife, Meghan Markle, and the two children, Archie, who's now four, and Lilibet, two, following his pit stop in London. Harry is set to join Meghan in Canada next week for an event to commemorate a year until the Invictus Games in Vancouver and Whistler. Although Harry and the Prince of Wales did not meet during the Duke's stay, it is understood mutual friend Mark Dyer, who was a mentor to the princes after the death of Diana, could act as a bridge between the siblings. I can't even believe they've not totally reunified by now because if this was my dad and I'd fell out with my sister, I would put that all to one side because I would know my dad in his heart, it'd be a huge weight if he were ill thinking that me and my sister weren't getting along. You've got to do everything possible to support your dad in this situation. It doesn't matter. It's the most serious thing in the world is your own mortality. It doesn't matter what's happened in the past. You've got to let bygones be bygones. So a source told the Times, former Welsh Guards officer, Mr. Dyer, who recently recovered from stomach cancer, has been offering Prince Harry support in recent years. Mark can always be relied upon to talk sense into Harry and will be a stoic, under-the-radar support for Harry in what has the propensity to be a stress-inducing time for him, the source said. You're not kidding. I mean, you know, they lost the mum when they were so young and then for the father to be facing this now, the bond that they formed when they went through what they went through with their mum, you think that bond would come back into effect at a time like this. Those close to Harry said he would have embraced the opportunity to meet with his brother, with an insider adding, the Duke's primary reason to travel to the UK is to visit his father. If the opportunity were to arise to see the Prince of Wales, 
then the Duke would have gladly accepted it. When times like this, you got to, I know you've got all these commitments, but you've got to, people are going to accept you can cancel things at times like this. So it was hoped Harry's return to Britain could help heal wounds with King Charles and a chance to reach out to his William amid years of strained relations. Harry and Meghan abandoned royal duties in early 2020 to live in America. The Duke has been critical of his family in TV interviews and his book Spur, which was published last year, which we've gone over in great detail in our weekly show, The Royal Mess, run by Ron Swanson, which goes out every Friday. I'm sure many of you have been in the chat there as well. And huge thank you to Tina from The Aftermath, who came on impromptu last night at very short notice. We did a live Q&A on this subject. Um, but I do believe she'll be back on the Royal Mess on Friday evening. So the book Spur featured staggering insights into the prince's relationship with his father and brother. Harry has barely spoken with his father since the death of Queen Elizabeth II. And it is reported there was no contact when he celebrated his 39th birthday in September. So do you guys think then, put one in the chat if you think it's Meghan Markle's influence over Harry like she's got him all to herself, that's played a major role in the lack of contact between Harry and Charles. Put a two in the chat. If you think it's all on Harry, is his own man, she's got nothing to do with it. Looks like we've got a lot of ones in there. You think it's the, the influence of Meghan Markle? So we've got an expert on narcissism coming on later on the show. So if you are in the chat at that time, perhaps put it in the comments here and see if they can give the psychodynamics of that. I know we did some with Richard Grannon, narcissism expert on Harry and Meghan. We did a two our podcast with Richard Grant. If you've not seen it, check it out. It went up last year about the narcissism of celebrities. Yeah, Lisa's got a good point here. He looks miserable around her these days. He, he really does have that glazed over dead eyes look, doesn't he? And you see him getting in and out of transport, looking smashed, you know, just looking lost. You see him at some of these events. Um, his body language is certainly signaling that he is not in a happy place in his life at this moment in time. I mean, I can understand. We all think it must be great to be raised in a royal family where they they like live like billionaires, but 
it's actually a very uncaring hierarchy, isn't it? It's not about wealth. It's all about titles and ego and rituals and nonstop public events and nonstop scrutiny by the media and the paps. That's got to be a lot of pressure on the brain, especially for a young person. So Charles had called Harry personally to tell him the devastating news and Harry immediately jumped on a plane so he could get to the UK as soon as possible. A luxury Range Rover believed to be carrying the British Royal was seen arriving at LAX's VIP terminal on Monday night and Harry boarded the earliest flight so he could be in London by lunchtime yesterday. He was accompanied by police security despite his ongoing row with the Home Office. (laughs) Trying to get the taxpayers to pay for everything. You got millions off your Spotify deal, Netflix deals, book deals. (laughs) How, How much is enough? So in Spur, Harry had revealed that Charles had urged his warring sons Please, boys, don't make my final years a misery. Now, that's quite a prophetic statement, isn't it? Because these royals tend to live to the three digits, like the Queen Mum, Queen Elizabeth, almost 100. And to say final years sounds fatalistic to me, as if he's not planning on having a golden era of reigning as the king. So it's believed that Harry's trip may have been motivated by what Charles said. Daily Mail diary editor Richard Eden said yesterday that Harry and Charles held a brief meeting before the king returned to Sandringham. Royal commentator Richard Fitzwilliams said, I'm sure Harry will put aside the past right now for this serious issue. The royal family, including the Sussexes, it's so important that everyone is pulling in the right direction. Christina, the King's former press secretary, added, Charles adores Harry. He didn't want any of this estrangement. If out of bad news, some good news comes and Harry and the King and the Queen and his brother are reunited. How wonderful. The King had been taken to London from Sandringham by helicopter on Monday to begin outpatient cancer treatment. He spent Monday night at home in London as family and friends revealed that the monarch remains hugely positive following the diagnosis. But he may miss public duties for a number of months, it's being claimed. The King and Camilla landed back at Sandringham in Norfolk at around 4.20pm yesterday, having left London immediately after the monarch met Harry. Um, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said, 
He was shocked and sad to hear about the diagnosis. But thankfully, it has been caught early. And it was Charles who contacted Harry and William personally to tell them of the diagnosis before it was announced publicly. And I, I read the uh, the public statement. We've done three live streams on this now. And I read the public statement in the first one. So despite the major concerns over Charles's health, MP Chris Bryant, who had surgery for skin cancer in March 2019, told Sky News, I think we should all calm down about the king. Cancer is not a death sentence. The worst day was that first night. It does get better. With my treatment, they cut a chunk out of the back of my head. As you know, it was all very frightening, and I'm still here. Oh, well, good good for you. Good spirits there. Charles has postponed all public-facing duties, but he's continuing with the behind-the-scenes work on the red boxes of state papers. And the confirmation of Williams' return to official engagements will be seen as an attempt to signal stability within the monarchy despite the difficult times facing the royals. William, the Queen, and the Princess Royal are going to be the key royals holding the fort along with the Duke and Duchess of Edinburgh. And the prince carried out an investiture at Windsor Castle this morning where former England footballer Ellen White was among those receiving honours. William is president of the Football Association, will make the record-scoring Lioness an MBE for services to football. Other recipients due at the ceremony include David Shreve, who co-founded an environmental action group with TV botanist David Bellamy, and Francis Dickinson, who solved an 80-year-old maritime mystery by locating the wreck of a submarine lost at sea during the Second World War. So in the evening, William is attending the gala fundraising dinner for London's Earth Ambulance Charity, in central London in his role as the organization's patron. The gala dinner is raising funds for London's uh, ambulance charity Up Against Time Appeal, which is seeking 15 million pounds, what's that, almost $20 million, to replace the service's helicopter fleet by the autumn. William is a former Air Ambulance pilot with the East Anglian Air Ambulance and during the event will meet crew members, former patients and supporters before delivering a short speech. So Anne is contributing considerably. She's holding the fort on the royal engagements. She's carrying out an investiture on behalf of the King at Windsor Castle before visiting family-run G.H. Hurt and Son in Nottingham, which has provided shawls for royal newborns for more than 70 years. Shawls for royal newborns. Is that... Wow, I didn't know that was something. <laughs> she is also back out today 
visiting the Defence Explosive Ordnance Disposal Training Regiment at St. George's Barracks in Bista. The Princess Royal is Colonel-in-Chief of the Royal Logistical Corps. Wow. So, that is the latest coming in from these news stories. We've got George the Giant Slayer coming in any moment. Let me just see if we've had any news in the past hour or so. Let's come in. Any more updates past hour? Um... It's saying that the whistle-stop 24-hour visit to the UK to see the king shows how deep the royal rift has become. Royal experts are saying that the duke has been disowned by his brother as he heads back to the US without seeing William or Kate. Now, that's a bit heavy. This has just come in in the last hour. And let me ask you guys, do you think that William is disowning Harry? If you do, put a one in the chat. Put a two in the chat if you think William is going to reconcile with Harry for the sake of their dad's psychological and physical health. Because, oop, Kazabur's in there with a one. Twos, ones, twos. It's looking quite even. Slightly more ones. And we've got George, the giant slayer, about to come in. So, get ready to get his thoughts on what's been a crazy week for Royal News. Hey, George, thank you for joining us. Absolutely my pleasure. How are you doing, my friend? Just... Nightly live streams, people are going bonkers over here. Everyone's hanging on what's going to happen next. Um, before we get into it, can you just tell the viewers, you know, a little bit about what you do, George, and where they can find you and support you? Right. I have a YouTube channel called George the Giant Slayer. We cover uh, pop culture. I try to break everything down to how pop culture, Hollywood, um, infects and impacts impacts the world. Not only like what is a good movie or a bad movie, but primarily focused on what they're trying to do to pollute society, which is why I also focus on the Megans. I not only see them as a couple who've turned their backs on their families, on the nation that gave them all their opportunities, but as prime examples, as representatives of what's going on in this generation. Well, speculation is running wild over here. There's all kinds of theories. Some people are saying that we're having the fulfillment of the prophecies of Nostradamus even. Um, what's your take? As this news started to break, what, what were your first impressions? Are we talking about the king's cancer? Yes. Well, one, I would send him my uh, prayers and blessings and best wishes so he could recover. But two, I think it has revealed another layer of the Megans, of Harry specifically. It's unmasked. You know, it's like peeling back an onion. When you take the, the latest three events that have happened between the Africa Parks, and what's happened with the Baca people and Harry being on the board of Africa Parks Network South Africa with their attendance at the 
with the Jamaican prime minister for the Bob Marley movie premiere with Paramount and the way the prime minister despises the UK, in my opinion, and how he wants to break away from it. And now with his uh, taking off and to see his father after his father calls him up, he shows up in London and then he spends 45 minutes with him. And within 48 hours, he's already back on a plane to go to L.A. so he can set up for an event for their Invictus Games, which are for a year from now, but they're going to start doing these press junkets. So when you look at it, I think it just adds another fact point. I don't know how anyone at this point cannot see the Megans for who they are. I mean, I used to say that she who must be obeyed has her ginger handbag. But after this week, I would say that the ginger handbag has turned into a shriveled sow's ear that reeks to the high heavens. I mean, what he did... Seeing his father, is that for his dad? Is that for the public's eyes? Even the question to ask that shows the destruction he's caused to his name. But if it was for his father, like, look, I'm Greek. When we've had a person in the family who received a diagnosis and something was critical, everybody dropped everything. It's like we went to them. It doesn't matter. Those are the moments when you put animosity aside, anger aside. It's like weddings, funerals, and medical illness. You put everything to the side and you go, I'm here for you. How long do you need me? I'm going to support you. We're going to make a plan. We're going to attack this. You're going to win. You're going to be healthy. You're going to be strong. And we're going to get passes. And nothing else matters. Nothing. Period. I've always believed that true love, real love, is always defined in the moment that when you despise someone the most, someone that you cared for, you had a bond with, you know, someone who you've gotten into like a knockdown drag out fight emotionally, where if they were on fire, you'd pull out the stick and put a marshmallow on and roast and go, hey, turn over so I can get the other side. If they needed you in that very second, you'd say, oh, whoa, whoa. we're going to put everything to the side. I'm here for you. That to me is the height of love and the definition of it. I think all Harry did was show his true character again. Well said. And that's why I'm scratching my head because I'm thinking, if this was my family and it happened to my dad and me and my sister weren't talking, we would, you know, reunite as fast as possible to try and boost our father's mental health, which would boost his physical health. So the fact that there was not even any kind of olive branch, it seems, between William and Harry, I mean, what does that signal to the world? Well, exactly. And did Harry go to actually talk to his dad for him? Or is he worried at the fact that he discovered that after the King's ascension with the Counselors of Estate Act of 2022, that the bill that passed the Commons in the House of Lords, that it basically sidelined Harry and Andrew as Counselors of Estate? Because remember, the House of Lords wanted to strip him completely when they added Princess Anne and Prince Edward to be Counselors of Estate for King Charles for life. There was a small notation, which is basically that councillors of estate can only be working members of the royal family. So did he go for that? Did he go to recharge his royal credit card? Did he go for his father? No one should be asking these questions. The fact that we have to ask these questions shows how far he's fallen. But that leads me to wonder, did he fall or has he just been protected his whole life by Buckingham Palace? And it's only without their protection that people discovered who he really was. Because we don't hear these things about Prince William. You don't hear he hates his family. You see him helping people. Like, 
Last week before this happened, why did Harry not hold a press conference? I'm on the board of Africa Parks. I was notified about a horrible act that happened, continues to happen. I'm taking responsibility for it. I'm getting the best investigators in the world. I'm going to grab all of you. You're going to fly with me. We're going to go there. We're going to solve this because it's what they want to happen. It's what he wants to happen. I don't think this had anything to do with the King Charles. He was supposed to be able to stay with him. Instead, he went to a London hotel. He needs to be there to boost his father because in everyone's mind, we have almost this, we have this ability. Some doctors will disagree, but it's like a medical pharmacy. Um, the ability to overcome many diseases by our belief system, or at least it boosts our ability when you have positivity. And you have strength of family and support systems around. But 45-minute visit, a 48-hour trip to just go back to Megan. And there we go again. Megan. I know nobody in the UK wants her to come. I don't want her to come. But see, character is defined by doing the hard thing. She should have shown up. I don't care if there were a parade of boos. That would have said, you know what? I can't stand them, but this is supposed to be family. I'm going to put up with all this to be there for my husband. Why? Not for her. She has nothing to do with it. For the kids. How many times has the king asked to see the kids? Come on. When I've had family members who had a serious diagnosis, the first thing that cheers them up are the children. They look at them and, you know, they're like, my, my grandmother got ill. All she wanted around her were kids. All the kids, the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren. Because, you know, they, they bolster her. They give her strength. She denied him that. Yeah, absolutely true. I mean, the brain has an internal pharmacy. And if you're thinking positive, you're releasing the good stuff. If you're stressed out, you're releasing, you know, the cortisol and the things that can damage your immune system. So you'd, you'd rally around your dad yep. and you'd be doing everything completely positive. And the, the, it's the kids that can infuse you with that the most. I mean, you know, the, the viewers know about my little little baby Ziggy here. I'm, I might be having a hard day. And um, I, I see little Ziggy laughing and cackling, even when he's covered in poo. He's just yeah, smiling, up, smiling up at me. If this, if if being covered in poo does not matter, what what the hell matters if he can smile at me covered in poo? That's what I'm trying to say. And um, the, that's the power a child can have on the parent's mind. So it, it's an absolute tragedy that. You know, William, and uh, it's it's come to this with William Harry at this very dark moment when Charles is facing his mortality. Correct. Correct. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, you see William, I was listening for a minute uh, earlier when I was driving to get here on time, and you were asking something, I think, along the lines of, has William disowned Harry? Was there a report of such? Is well, that what you're saying? there's a major interpretation in the Daily Mail that came out in the last hour saying that the fact that William um, didn't make any move to have any dialogue with Harry is a complete snob. That's what the Mail is saying presently. But it makes sense, though, if, if you think about it. His wife was attacked, the mother of his children. But at the same time, in Harry's own words, in spare... And I believe it was in the ITV interview when he had shared that uh, during a moment of crisis that uh, Prince William had you know, grabbed him by the arm and had said, you know, I'm like your brother and it's it's on our mother's life. I'm paraphrasing the words. You know what I'm talking about where he was like, trust me. 
you know, it's on our, on our mother's life or something. And Harry said, I was shocked and stunned. And that was like our secret code word to, to cut through all the BS, to know that this is serious. You can trust me. And he said, well, I turned to him and said, I don't trust you. But to me right there, that's Harry disowned him. Harry traded in his family for Megan. That's all there is. I mean, most people go through their lives and they have a Megan or a female or a male version. It lasts a short time. They can get twisted, turned, they can get destroyed, they ostracize their families. But at some point when it comes to medical issues, when it comes to funerals, when it comes to weddings, there are moments that they snap to and they start seeing it. And you haven't seen that because I used to believe that Harry was just bamboozled by her. You know, I would call him halfwit. You know, this is a guy who was, you know, she turned and put him around her pinky finger. And I think a part of that is true. But at the same time, I start to wonder, or did she just remove all his masks and show the world who he is? Good point. So viewers, wherever you are watching this in the world, we are live with George the Giant Slayer. We've got 20 minutes for our next guest. If you have a question for George, please put them in the chat and that will come up at the side here and we will get as many through as many as possible. Um, my question is, George, how do you see this playing out then? You mean with a family, with Harry, with Megan, with with all? So, well, there's, there's, a, there's a spectrum of scenarios. Let, let, let's go from King Charles just bounces back from this, no big deal, to, you know, the worst case scenario. Um, what, what do you think would happen? Well, I think it's more severe than the press is reporting. I, I don't know why. That's just my gut. I have no information, no facts. It's just the way, you know, when you try to read between the lines, the way things are being reported, the, the word choices that are being used, I think it's a little more severe than they're, than they're laying out. The same way that they hid Queen Elizabeth's uh, illness, the same way that uh, for a while Prince Philip's was hidden until it was discovered. I, I think there's just something more serious. So if the king bounces back, Unfortunately, I think that would prolong what's going to happen with Meghan and Harry. Like, they're going to stick together. I don't want anything bad to happen to him, so let me make that clear. But I'm saying when he bounces back, which hopefully he does, God willing, I think that will prolong what's going on with Meghan and Harry. If, God forbid, something does happen to him, I think Meghan and Harry are going to have a rude awakening because you're going to have a King William. And I don't think he's going to be. I think he's going to be the person who's going to say, this is how the cow ate the cabbage. Now, when it comes to Megan and Harry, again, I believe that Megan, I was actually stunned that Megan didn't use the Africa Parks uh, horror that happened there to do a press tour, even to take a little jab at Harry. This is not a person who thinks of other people, someone who only thinks of herself and her career. And she could say, you know, I love the man with all my life, but he's on the board there. And uh, we've got to handle this because, you know, you've discovered I'm X percentage Nigerian. So Africa is very close to my heart. Like I, I saw her playing on that and I didn't get that. So I started to wonder, is she going to save that up for whenever an impending divorce comes for a book? You know, this is one of the straws that broke the camel's back, how he could betray. It's just... When you have a narcissist of that level who only thinks about themselves, everything is ob objective-based. Everything is a situational ethics. What do I need to do to get to my end goal? So uh, I just don't see it lasting. And I think Prince William, 
is going to be the one with, along with Princess Catherine, as soon as she's fully recovered, to support the king through this time, oh, as well as Queen Camilla, and everyone is going to rally around them. You're going to see now the cream rise to the top. Princess Anne is already, again, she's the hardest-working royal in the entire family. She's already stepped up her game, and she was already ahead of it for everyone. So I think she's going to fill in there, and I think William will bolster everything with his family. I think the children, I read that they haven't introduced the children yet to, to the king to explain what's going on, but I think that should be done immediately because, again, kids have this ability to revive their relations, especially grandparents. So, Indeed. I've got a question from Nikki. Do you think Harry will release a statement in the next couple of days? And who knows with, with Harry anymore? <laughs> will he release a statement? I'm sure something will come out from their press people. Unfortunately, I think it's going to be in preparation. They're going to use this moment where the cameras are, are all on them, waiting to see what is he going to say about his dad? What is he saying about the king? I think they're going to use it just to push Invictus games, which is sad. Because why would he be? Again, when we had a relative that this happened to, we dropped everything. And it's not like we had the money to do so. You make sacrifices. You drop business. You drop your life. And you go, we're going to be there for as long as is needed to help the person get through this. And then set up the support mechanisms so people can keep rotating out. Harry should still be there. He should be like, no, this is my dad. Then I would start to have a glimmer of hope and go, okay, maybe there is a real person under here who cares and is, isn't only in it for himself. Because he's dropped everything. He could be like, you know, the Invictus games, the, the kickoff. Because it's going to happen from here, we're pushing it back a few months. I don't know when we're going to do it. I don't know when we're going to do it. I think I'm going to spend all my time here with my dad. My wife's going to come up. She's going to bring the kids to help be a support system for me. That's what he should be doing. Anything else just is disgusting. Question from Ian. On a very, very long-term perspective, has the monarchy ever really recovered since Cromwell? Well, he wants to... Tap into your historical knowledge here. <laughs> no, I know. I, I think in one way, I think Queen Elizabeth saved it. I think Queen Elizabeth, I also think Queen, I think Queen Elizabeth saved it. If it wasn't for her, I do not believe there would be a, a British monarchy today. I just, that's my feeling from a historical perspective. Question from Cogitator. What does George think Prince William's next moves will be? I think he's going to just show his support for his father. I don't think he's, I think he's going to keep, uh, keep moving ahead. I don't believe he's going to make any comment about his brother. Uh, if anything, I think, you know, he's going to remain silent and keep the attention focused on his father and more than likely focused on the UK and the Commonwealth. But he wants to take that camera off him so his dad can heal. That's how I would do yeah. it. Blue Nomad. What does Anne actually do? Quite a lot, apparently. Oh my God, she <laughs> held more events for the royal family than anyone else. She's literally the hardest working world. You can find her at a charity event and a soup kitchen. You can find her giving out awards. I'm, I think it was 24, 48 hours ago, she was giving out something that I was going to ask you. It says she was handing out in the Daily Mail gong awards. I didn't know what that was. <laughs> so it was interesting. Question from Triple Crown. I'm wondering if Diana were alive, if firstly, Harry would have turned out this way, and secondly, if she'd, as in Diana, have approved of Meghan. If Diana were alive, would Harry have turned out? See, I don't, a lot of people, look, millions of people lose a parent, lose a mother throughout their lives, and they turn out okay. The trauma, the pain is always with you. But character isn't defined by what one 
can do. The character is defined and it's built brick by brick by what you don't do. And we see that every single time Harry takes the path of least resistance to fulfill whatever he wants. I don't think Diana would, I think she would have tempered it a bit. I'll put it that way. I think it would have been a knockdown drag out fight between her and Megan behind the scenes. Would she have allowed Harry to marry Megan? I think she probably would have in the hopes that he would discover who she was. All right, thanks for your questions so far. Keep them coming. Martin is taking it back to Nostradamus. Um, did Nostradamus predict the scenario that's playing out? Let me just read the quatrain in this interpretation by Mario Redding. It says, and it's quatrain 10 forward slash 22, because they disapproved of his divorce, a man who later they considered unworthy. The people will force out the king of the islands. A man will replace him who never expected to be king. And the summary here in this interpretation is King Charles III of England, weary at the persistent attacks on both himself and his second wife in the 25 years since the death of his first wife, Princess Diana, decides to abdicate in favor of Prince William. What's your thoughts on that then, George? You know, I've never really read Nostradamus. I've, I've read bits and pieces here and there. Um, I think the best move at this point would be to pass it on to Prince William. Uh, I, I don't think, and I say this not because of his age. Yes, given his position as the monarch, age plays a factor because of the stress and the responsibilities. I think it is William's time. And I think there are certain decisions that have to be made in order to shore up the royal family that King Charles as a father cannot make. And you wouldn't expect most fathers to do that. But I, I believe that William has the ability, the discernment to uh, cut through everything. And I, I think that King Charles needs to go, okay, I'm king. I got it. I'm here. Okay, let me now go and live the rest of my life and support my son as best as I can. Yeah, and there's a theory that William is the unexpected king because William was not expecting it at this point in time. And if Charles just wants to spend, you know, his years with Camilla, this could be a situation that, you know, no one would hold it against him to want to just take it easy and recover and fight this and pass it over to William. So it's an ideal opportunity to pass it on rather than end up in a scenario that we saw, you know, a hundred years ago when, when, when they passed it on the Right from King George. George. You're talking about yeah. Elizabeth. Yeah, right. I, I think I didn't mean to interrupt you. I think this would be the perfect time because it allows him to exit with honor and save face. Everybody understands it's cancer. I'm going to be with my family. I love my country. I love my citizens. And I think the best decision is to move forward with somebody who's who I trust completely, who is my son, who's at you know, full strength, full capability. I think that would be a wise decision. Yeah, indeed. I think it's shaping up for that. So Deborah is asking, do you think Megan will upstage things at Invictus? <laughs> remember what she did. Do you all remember what she did in the German Invictus games? The march? She was marching in front of the veterans. I'm like, you remember the veterans, that's what the games are for. But she's out there in her shorts, like this parade is about me. 
No, yes, she will always try to upstage everything. Which ties into the next question from Disco 1000. Do you think Invictus will dump Harry? He is definitely tarnishing them now. Well, he lost two board members. Was it four months ago? Two of the, two not board members, two executives who left a couple of months ago from the uh, Invictus Games, from the winner Invictus Games. I don't know how much control they have over the foundation or he has. I don't know that. I have to look for it, but I'll look for it and I'll get back to Sean and hopefully he can pass it on to you. Ian's got a follow-up question. Is it a kind of partial regency? Q, is it kind of a partial regency? Are you talking about the Invictus? Are you talking about the monarchy? The monarchy. A partial regency. What does he mean by partial regency? Can you yeah, can you expand on that? I know we we talked, we answered the question from earlier. I think he's following up, but it's been so long ago we've um, mm -hmm. lost that thread. So if you could expand on that in the comments, we'll get to it. So Anne is saying... I cannot see Prince William going through with all that crowning ceremony and parades. It's all too much. And, you know, I'm watching him in, the net, in Netflix's The Crown. I don't know how realistic it is. But he does come across as a, as a very uh, sympathetic character. I think he's, I think he's very down to earth. Uh, I think if he, when he becomes king, I do not believe it's going to be at the same level. It's kind of like a man who's like, we have a job to do. We're going to do it. Let's get to it. I think he's going to do whatever he's going to do is going to be on a smaller scale for the people. But it's like, let's just get this done and move forward. That's my we've take. Got, we've got 10 minutes left with George, the giant slayer. Get your final questions in now, please. And Ash sent a question in. He has since gone to bed. He's poorly. Um, his question is, can they still play the victim card in light of this? They will always play the victim card. That's what keeps damaging him. See, they don't play anything. Okay, I'll, I'll use the word play. They are themselves. If they were intelligent and sharp, let's say, as attack or listen to people, they would play how celebrities play certain games. They would have done everything that I have suggested. They would not be flying out to Jamaica to stand with a prime minister who despises the country where they get their titles from. They wouldn't be attending there in what looks like a midnight ball gown when everybody else is dressed in shorts. It's everything to them is about how do we sap the attention, suck the oxygen out of every room, no matter what we have to do. And that's the problem. No matter what they have to do is what keeps defining who they are. Question from Deborah. Do you think Harry and Meghan will get the taxpayers to pay for their security? No. I do not. I do not believe he's going to win that case. I don't. Question from Blueberry. Do you think they both act mainly on paranoia? No. Wow. I, <laughs> if they were smart, they would have acted more on paranoia. I think they act out of self-interest. They use every situation to their advantage. That's how I believe they behave. And we've got an expert on narcissism coming on later on the show. So if you've got questions about the psychodynamics of that, hold on to them. Question from kids. Um, on a scale from one to 10, where 10 is excellent, how would George rate King Charles's time on the throne so far? In some things, I would rate it a nine, a 10. In other areas, I would rate it a five or a six. But I think those, con those kind of questions are best saved after he's recovered. I, I don't want to, when someone is struggling to start 
going, oh, well, I think you did this right, and I think you did this wrong. I, I think it's kind of rude. But I appreciate the question. I think overall he has done a, a benefit and a service to his country because he believes in duty and honor to his people. It's just certain areas that I disagree with him on, and I think we could talk about that at another time. Well, this ties into your expertise. It's from Disco 1000. Are Harry and Meghan completely finished in Hollywood? Oh, yeah. They keep talking about a comeback, a comeback, a comeback, a comeback, but I, I don't think so. You can tell just based on the fact the Santa Barbara Film Festival, that's in their neighborhood in Montecito. WME, William Morris Agency, one of the most powerful talent agencies in the world, was not able to secure them a set of invitations to go there. That's because they're like, you're not A-list. That's where Kevin Costner, Tom Hanks, Kate Blanchett, they go there. And that's in their community. So imagine what the community is telling them, which almost everybody from Montecito, even non-actors, people who aren't in the Hollywood show business, get to go to the festival. And once the Hollywood Reporter named them one of the biggest losers of 2023, that kind of signaled it was over for them. Will they make finish their productions with Netflix? I'm sure they will. Will they succeed? I have no idea. Will Megan make a comeback in suits of some sort? Could be. They're going to throw everything at the wall to see what sticks. But their time in Hollywood is over. And I think the Oscars that are coming up in March will probably uh, prove that out. If they don't end up somehow in the show giving out an award or, or something, like handing out an Oscar to someone, I don't care if it's animation or special effects, if they do not have a role in that, then they're completely done. What about the relationship with Oprah? I think it's another useless relationship. Oprah used them in order to get her name back in the public spotlight after being gone for years. But I think whether it's Oprah or Ellen DeGeneres or Tyler Perry or the people that they hang out with, they want to get into that inner elite circle. See, they want to be a part. And I go back to the Africa thing. Look at the people on the, on the various boards there. All of them are into one degree or another mining, oil, uh, minerals, jewels, farming. Everything that the organization is supposed to be quote-unquote against, they're conserving, they're destroying an ecosystem of uh, people who are self-sustainable, the Baca, right, in order to preserve their rainforest, even though they live off of them. So everything shows the couple as hypocrites. We're for the climate, but we fly private jets. We're for mental health, but we pull publicity stunts that say paparazzi are chasing us to kill us. We love the UK, but we brand everybody bigots. We love our family, but we call them haters. Like <laughs> Egyptian princess is wondering why Harry needs so much security. Ego. <laughs> Nobody cares about Harry about the ego. It's ego. He wants to feel special. Look, I got security. <laughs> Do you not think though that the being what fourth or fifth in line, whatever it is, makes him like a target for kidnappers or terrorists or something like that? A guy, a Harry. Come, I think kidnappers would give him back, and we're talking about someone who's good. <laughs> oh, come on, Harry. Jesus. Send him back. We'll pay you, please. Arrest us. No, no. I, I I don't think it's at that point. I think if it was before he married Megan, when his profile was higher and more positive, then his security risk was more. And I believe a short time after he married Megan, because of all the fascination. And remember, the UK, as you know, 
were all supporting of it in the beginning, unlike what the Megans say. So yes, at that point, you want to protect them from wackos, but that requires a security guard, maybe, for certain big occasions. I mean, he goes around jogging and doing yoga all over the United States. They show him one day, oh, he walks out of a gym the next day. He didn't have any security, which means he doesn't need it. Yeah, show, ego. Scampi's done a follow-up comment here. Why would Harry need more security than William? Harry is either paranoid or knows he ticked off the wrong people, probably both. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you both. He doesn't need more security. Again, ego. Ego and jealousy to add since you added Prince William. He can't stand the fact that his brother has an entourage of security, which is for his position and shows his importance and the danger that he can face, again, from lunatics, outriders. Uh, and when Harry doesn't have it, I mean, how does he turn to his wife? It's like when he first dated her, it's like, look at all my guys, you know, subconsciously, I'm a prince. And now it's like, yeah, I was just taking pictures and selfies with a fake prince of German trash TV. <laughs> Viewers, thanks for your questions. George, it's always a great pleasure. Can you just remind the viewers again where they can find you, support you, follow you? Yes, you can find me at George the Giant Slayer on YouTube. You can find me on Twitter under the same name or on Instagram. Thank you, Sean. It's been great seeing you again. Hope to see you soon. I had a great time. Indeed. Cheers. And you take care, my friend. Cheers. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. So George's links, as are all of the guests' links, are in the description box below this video. Please support their work. We're going to be bringing in the next guest. I saw a few comments about my shells being burr. That's because I've relocated. And this is a temporary backdrop. Um, but we are bringing in some experts to refine the backdrop. And it will be adjusted in the coming weeks. So Stephen's coming in now. And I'll be back in an hour or so. And huge thank you for all your questions. That was great. Cheers. All right, Stephen, I'm going to hand it over to you. Speak to you soon. Cheers. Philip Goff, thanks for joining us. How are you? Hello, Stephen. I'm very well. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. Our pleasure entirely. I was just looking over some of your writing uh, before when, when it was announced that you was coming on the show. And I think I think we're going to have a cracking conversation, actually, given, given where we're both coming from. Uh, maybe you could just let our listeners uh, and audience know what it is you do, what keeps you busy. I'm a philosopher at Durham University in the cold north of England, and I spend most of my time trying to work out the ultimate nature of reality. I'm particularly interested in consciousness. Perhaps the biggest challenge of contemporary science and philosophy is how the brain manages to produce this inner world of colors and sounds and smells and tastes that we all enjoy. And I've defended the odd sound in view that the best explanation of this is panpsychism, that consciousness goes all the way down to the fundamental building blocks of reality, which sounds a bit odd, but has been taken much more seriously in recent years. All right. Do I detect a slight Merseyside twig? I am uh, well spotted. I am a Liverpudlian. People from Liverpool can never spot it, but I am a Liverpudlian. Um, I'm in Manchester. Alarms go off straight away when there's a, there's oh. a scouse in the in the vicinity. We can, we can be friends, I hope, for this. I, I hope so. I, I, I like to transcend tribal rivalries myself. <laughs> but especially yeah, like to, 
Yeah, well, especially since I'm looking forward to getting getting into this because these these are the big topics, aren't they? Like fundamental to the meaning of life, really. So, like you say, consciousness—that's that's the spooky one, isn't it? That's the mysterious mm-hmm. one. You know, that I suppose the debate really would tip. You know, usually at its most polarized would be between people who would say, you know, consciousness is sort of just a product of the brain and it ceases to exist at death when the brain is, you know completely destroyed uh people usually monotheist religious types would say actually um, our consciousness is something that exists external to that and perhaps will live on in some form or or way where, where do you come down on this debate yeah absolutely i think i think that dichotomy between you know do you believe in the god of traditional religion or are you a secular atheist you know many people at least in the west think they have to fit into one team or the other it's like whose side are you on Richard Dawkins or the Pope you know what I mean <laughs> and uh you know I, I I was raised Catholic as a good Liverpoolian and but decided I was an atheist when I was 14 and refused to get confirmed upset my grandmother uh and I was I guess I was quite happily on team secular atheist for a long time but just recently over maybe the last five or six years I've come to think that actually both of these worldviews have are inadequate both of them have things they can't explain about reality and hence you know what what i've explored in my most recent book uh modestly titled why the purpose of the universe is whether actually there are, there are middle neglected middle ground options between these two polarized extremes and that's what i've got really interested in exploring recently I suppose then if you were going to be like a, a Dawkinsian cynic on this, you, you would say that this is a case of basically religious spirituality without any of the annoying dietary requirements or church attendance, things like that. So where, where are you coming down from on this where you could really kind of square it with something that perhaps was scientific if you if that is indeed the path you take? Yeah, well... I mean, one thing I like about Richard Dawkins is, you know, he's the, he aims at not the view we'd like to be true, but the view that's most likely to be true. I actually think, I think there's things traditional religion struggles to explain, such as the suffering we find in the universe. But I think there's actually also things our traditional atheist view of a meaningless, purposeless universe struggles to explain as well, Particular, particularly the so-called fine-tuning of physics for life. This is the recent discovery of, of the last few decades that for life to be possible, certain numbers in physics had to be just right. Uh, so, you know, perhaps the example that's most baffled cosmologists revolves around dark energy. This is the force that propels the accelerating expansion of the universe. In 1998, we discovered our universe is not only expanding, but it's accelerating. And when scientists calculated that number, sometimes called the cosmological constant, the the force of dark energy that's pushing things apart, they discovered a surprising fact, right? If that number had been a little bit stronger, everything would have shot apart so quickly that no two particles would have ever met. We wouldn't have had stars or planets or any kind of structural complexity whatsoever. Whereas if that number had been a little bit weaker, it wouldn't have counteracted gravity, which meant that everything would have collapsed back on itself in the first split second after the Big Bang. And therefore, for life or anything interesting to be possible, that number had to be like Goldilocks porridge, 
just right. And I think, like many scientists and philosophers increasingly, it's just radically improbable that that number would be just right for life just by some, some kind of cosmic fluke. So I really think this is something our contemporary idea of a meaningless, purposeless universe struggles to accommodate because it looks like some kind of directedness towards life at the fundamental level at the very early stages of the universe. That's a that's a great on answer, and I suppose I mean I'll get back onto this idea of you know meaning in life and the universe because th this is what motivates us all. And I, I found as I've got a lot older that questions become a bit more of a, a difficult one, and I, I find myself being less hostile towards spirituality and religion in a way that I once was, I suppose. Uh, but in, in regard to this like fine tuning uh, observation, which is undoubtedly true, the conditions. Uh, that we are the beneficiaries of, uh, we're here. But I, and with you saying that's improbable, I mean, to me, I suppose what I would say is that if the universe is as vast as we believe it is, you know, perhaps even infinite, surely that these conditions could arise by chance at least once, given the, you know, the variables. Yeah, that's a really good point. Just, I mean, just on your first point, I think it is such a huge demographic now, the people who class themselves as spiritual but not religious, who don't quite feel satisfied by the sort of new atheist Richard Dawkins idea, but are sort of in some way alienated by traditional religion. So it's, it's a big proportion of the population, but I find academics standardly don't cater for those people. And so <laughs> we get this idea that it's like fluffy thinking, but I think that's just because people haven't put in the work to develop you know scientifically philosophically rigorous frameworks for making sense of this and it's, i think it's really exciting that this is what's starting to happen now and this is one of the things i'm trying to do in this book bringing together that very rigorous work that's been done by academics on making sense of the sort of spiritual but not religious but coming straight to your question yeah so many science this is not controversial fringe physics right this is as you say um, pretty broad, broadly understood in physics now that for life to be possible, these numbers had to be just right. Now, many scientists and philosophers who think this needs explaining go for the multiverse hypothesis. So you said, you said then, oh, well, the universe is so big. Won't these numbers vary? Well, not quite, because at least in our current understanding of, uh, of physics, these are, these are numbers that have applied from the Big Bang onwards and apply to all of the observable universe that we've been part of, this expanding universe. So if all there is is our universe, the universe we've observed, then, th then these numbers, as far as we, as we understand, have been constant throughout the whole of, that, whole of that universe. But what if there are other universes? That's the question. Many scientists and philosophers in struggling to explain this theorize maybe there are many universes, maybe infinite number of universes, all with slightly different numbers in their physics. So in some, gravity is stronger, in some it's weaker, in some the universe expands quicker, in some it's slower. So if you've got enough universes with enough variety in their physics, maybe statistically speaking, you're going to get one that's just by chance, just right for life. Now, to be honest, that's what I used to believe in. I've always thought this needed explaining, but I thought the multiverse hypothesis looked like, you know, the most plausible explanation, better than some strange idea of 
a directedness towards life. But it was only when I looked deeply into this, I discovered actually some really crucial work by uh, philosophers of probability that have, that have discovered that actually there's just some dodgy reasoning in the multiverse hypothesis. And um, I was kind of dragged kicking and screaming into thinking, actually, there's no other alternative. We need to take seriously at this idea, strange as it seems, that there is directedness towards life at the fundamental level of reality. That feels weird. You know, that feels odd to me. But I think, you know, we need to set aside both our religious biases, but also our secular biases. If that's where the evidence is pointing, then, you know, we should, who are we to say? We just need to follow the evidence where it leads. Um, should I tell you about why the multiverse is is this dodgy reasoning? Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, just listening to that, I often think that to kind of invoke multiple universes kind of contradicts an Occam's razor uh, approach to a question anyway. But uh, yeah, go ahead. This is fascinating. Yeah, so it's it's obviously a technical debate, and and you try and try and simplify it. But there's a nice analogy that gets the basic idea. So the charge is that the multiverse person commits what's called the inverse gambler's fallacy. Uh, people might have heard of the gambler's fallacy, actually. This is, suppose you've been playing, I don't know, roulette all night and you've had really bad luck. You've just, you'd had crap rolls all night and you think, I'm going to have one more go. I'm bound to have good luck this time because I've had bad luck all night. Now, everyone agrees that's a, a fallacy. A fallacy, by the way, is a mistake in reasoning. Because no matter how much you've been playing, you know, rolling two dice to get a double six, it doesn't matter if this is your first roll or you've been playing all night, the odds of getting a double six are the same, one in 36. You know, that's just well understood probability theory. Right, the inverse gambler's fallacy goes like this, right? So suppose, Stephen, you and I go into a casino tonight, maybe in Manchester, and... Um, the first, the first room we go into, there's someone just having an incredible run of luck. They're just winning game after game after game, winning millions of pounds. They're just doing incredibly well. And I say to you, wow, there must be a lot of people in the casino tonight. And you say, Philip, what are you talking about? We've just seen this one guy. How, what's that got to do with the people elsewhere in the casino? And I say, well, well, if there's, if there's just one person playing in the casino tonight, then it's really improbable that someone's going to have a good run of luck. But if there are thousands of people playing in the casino, then it's not so surprising that someone in the casino, somebody's going to have a good run of luck. Now, everyone agrees also that is, a, that is a fallacy. That is a mistake in reasoning because our evidence that we've observed is just this one person playing well, right? No matter how many people there are in the casino, it has no bearing on how likely it is that this one guy is going to have a run of luck. But that just seems exactly the same reasoning of the person trying to explain this weird fine-tuning in terms of the multiverse. They look at our universe and they say, oh my God, it's got the right numbers for life. There must be loads of other universes with the wrong numbers. But that's the same error. All we've observed is this one universe. No matter how many other unobservable universes there are out there, it, it has no bearing on how likely it is that our universe will have the right numbers for life. So it's a little bit complicated, but I hope that analogy gets it across. And, you know, so this is what, over a long period of time, made me just 
take this these very strange ideas seriously. And, you know, I really do think that's where the evidence is pointing towards what I call cosmic purpose, some kind of directedness towards life at the fundamental level of reality, strange as that sounds. Yeah. And I think I think interpretations and, and conversations and, and studies into this are always really valuable because there's there's nothing that stems from what you're doing or saying, which logically leads to you dictating, you know, what food people can eat or, you know, whether they should be masturbating, for instance, you know, what the, the kind of kooky kind of proclamations you get from monotheism. Th th this idea of meaning really fascinates me, though. And like I say, it's something that has resonated more with me as I've got older. And I've, I've always kind of, my line in the sand, I suppose, is uh, with spirituality. I would say I'm I'm a spiritual person in many ways. For instance, I, I mean, I've stood at the edge of the Grand Canyon and had a, a, a certain feeling that can probably only be described as spiritual. You know, I've, I, I, I'm in love. I have a, a long-term partner. I, I have family members I love. You know, it's all this, this wealth of experience, you know, music, art, literature, all these things provide some kind of meaning and give me experiences which I perhaps term spiritual but i suppose where i draw the line is is kind of saying well none of that really ever trips over into the realm of supernatural so i suppose what i'm asking in a really long-winded way is is what you believe about the universe is this something that would just be explained as natural phenomena if we did have a full understanding of it mm. or do you, are you are you invoking some sort of supernatural entity to explain our current situation that's a great question Stephen. and yeah i think i i think i I feel those solid secular intuitions in as much as I don't want to go for something dogmatic where this is what you've got to believe, you know, come what may, whatever the evidence suggests. I'm somebody who naturally wants to be open-minded. Um, but but that goes both ways, as I say. I think in some ways the situation with fine-tuning now is a little bit like in the 17th century where we first started getting evidence that we weren't in the center of the universe. And people struggled to accept that because it didn't fit with the picture of reality they'd got used to. And now we tend to mock our ancestors in the 17th century, 16th century rather, I should say. Um, say, oh, well, those stupid religious people, why didn't they just follow the evidence? But I think every generation absorbs a worldview they can't see beyond. And I think at the moment, that dogmatic worldview is this idea that we're living in this meaningless, purposeless universe, that that's definitely the truth, whatever the evidence suggests. And I think future historians looking back will think how bizarre that people in the 21st century ignored this fine tuning just because it didn't fit with the picture of the world they got used to. But yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think that's where many people are a sense of spirituality, a sense of something deeper, um, a sense of the meaning and profundity of life perhaps goes beyond what um, what your kind of Richard Dawkins picture suggests and are struggling to ways, ways to make sense of that. So, you know, most of my book is just a cold-blooded scientific philosophical argument for what I call cosmic purpose. But the first and last chapters are thinking about the implications for human meaning and purpose, um, connecting to spiritual practice, to community, even to political struggle, that broader understanding of the human condition. And um, yeah, 
taking seriously these big questions. I guess people will disagree with it, but just engaging with these big, important questions, I think is so important. It's fascinating. And the only the only way you can really uh, prevent, I suppose, your beliefs in this regard or intuitions from coming dogmas is to have them challenged and have them collide with other ideas. So with that being said, if anyone's got any questions for Philip, put them in the comments now and I'll get them to him. Uh, but just to switch gears a little bit, I think I've spent most of my time here kind of uh, pushing back on the idea of perhaps a creator or something supernatural. But why is it that you reject the idea of God? I mean, obviously it wrapped things up nicely. The, you know, the, even the concept of fine tuning in, in of itself, in, you know, could imply some intelligent design, you know, the prime mover, the uncaused cause. Wouldn't it wrap this up all nicely just to invoke some sort of omnipotent being? Yeah. So, I mean, I think God is one explanation of fine tuning. Maybe God fixed the numbers right for life. I don't think it's a very good explanation, though, for the familiar reason what's called the problem of evil and suffering, this challenge of reconciling a loving or powerful God with the terrible suffering we find in the world. You know, why would a loving God create the North American long-tailed shrew that paralyzes its prey and then eats it alive over several weeks before it dies from its wounds? You know, it's just... That makes no sense. Like, why would you? Um, so, so I don't think God's a great explanation. What's the alternative, actually? And I didn't quite answer your question. Do I go for something supernatural? Well, I actually explore a range of hypotheses. What one possibility is just tweaking the characteristics of God a bit. You know, maybe it's a bad God. Maybe it's an amoral God. Maybe it's a God of limited abilities who's just made the best universe they can. Um, or maybe the simulation hypothesis developed by the philosopher Nick Bostrom that we live in a computer simulation and our creator is some just some random software engineer in the next universe up. So that's one possibility, a little bit in the supernatural realm, I guess. Another option, though, um, the, the philosopher Thomas Nagel developed this idea of teleological laws of nature, just laws of nature with purposes built into them. So maybe we don't need a conscious mind to, under, to undergird cosmic purpose. Maybe there's just a, a natural tendency of the universe towards life, one that interacts with the traditional laws of physics in ways we don't yet understand. Uh, but the third, my favorite hypothesis in the book um, is what's called cosmopsychism, the idea that the universe itself is a conscious mind directed towards certain goals. And I try to argue this isn't quite as extravagant as a hypothesis as you might first think. And it, it, it has the advantage of not going for something supernatural. Why postulate some supernatural being outside the universe if you can make sense of the universe itself being some kind of conscious entity that fine-tuned itself? And I think that's actually something that makes kind of rigorous scientific and philosophical sense. It's a good answer. So I'm just going to put a question to you, which is kind of tangentially related to consciousness. Another big one uh, in that sphere. Uh, where do you stand on determinism v versus free will? Good, right. So I'm, I, I mean, it's a huge question and something I go into in the book. I'm so I'm somewhat agnostic. Um, I think the reality of free will is not as certain as the reality of consciousness. Um, it could turn out that it's actually an illusion, that we're not really free in the way we think we are. I think that's much harder to make sense of with our own feelings and experiences. Um, 
However, I think that the scientific and the philosophical arguments against free will, for example, in the popular sphere put out by Sam Harris, are just terrible arguments. I don't, I don't think that, that there's really any good. I think it's, it's actually a sort of a dogma. I think there's this sense that everything that happens in the brain is must be explicable in terms of the basic equations of physics, and therefore we're not really free. I don't, I don't think we we know enough about the brain to know that one way or the other. I think that's more of a sort of zeitgeist. Uh, that people feel like it fits with the feeling of the moment, just like in the 17th, in the 16th century. You know, we couldn't accept we weren't in the center of the universe because it didn't fit with our worldview. So, yeah, I mean, I do tentatively believe in free will because I think it's it's currently an open question and it seems that we have free will and that's some evidence for it, if if only tentative. And um, yeah, but we, you know, we should, of course, have an open an open mind on these questions. I think, yeah, I think it's a particularly terrifying subject because I think we all intuitively at least believe we are, you know, in possession of free will. We are the masters of our own destiny. We are in in charge of the choices we make. And the idea that we're perhaps not is kind of scary in a lot of ways. You know, maybe the idea that we're just carrying out impulses directed to us by our biological functions in an unconscious way kind of throws into question, you know, many things, including our entire justice system i think that's one of the things sam harris uh touched on uh, as well so like yeah like you i'm completely agnostic on that but then again i, I don't believe i have any choice to be the start <laughs> steal a very poor dad free will joke there for you but i suppose keeping on the vein of uh sam harris uh philip have you tried meditation absolutely well, i used to, i used to meditate every morning before my second child arrived and now it's a little bit impossible i if i, if I happen to wake up earlier than the kids but yeah i do in the final chapter have a a, a kind of um theory of what spiritual advancement might be thought to consist in uh relating it to meditation and the use of psychedelics and so on this was this is an extract that was printed in the Wall Street Journal. Oh, it's as a British audience, isn't it? So it's probably irrelevant. But um, yeah, I have this idea, well, how to not get into too much of the details, but that, that spiritual advancement is kind of about undoing our conditioned ways of seeing reality. I think, you know, we, we tend to think we're just seeing the world as we look around us as it really is, but there's all sorts of ways in which we subtly project onto the world our culturally specific conception of it uh, as though it were as though that were how reality really is and i think things like meditation psychedelics great art can undo that just to say about art how art might do that you know i think i contrast sort of two extremes of bad art one extreme you've got just very boring bad art that just follows the standard cultural rules without doing anything interesting. The other extreme, you've got sort of anarchic, well, I love punk. I love the original punk bands, you know, that just tear up the rules, say, you know, screw everything. And that's great in a way, but the problem is it's not sustainable. It quickly, quickly becomes another fashion, another cult culturally conditioned way of seeing the world. You know, I'm a punk and I dress like this. So great art for me works within our Cult contingent cultural frameworks, but undoes them subtly from within. Maybe like my the fellow Liverpoolians, the Beatles did. You know, they started off with standard rock and roll, and they sort of undid 
did new things with it that no one had imagined before. So I think meditation and art and, of course, psychedelics kind of wrenches away those cultural conditioned ways of seeing the world in sometimes quite scary ways. But, yeah, I think um, I think these are all very important parts of we want to make rigorous sense of this idea of being spiritual but not religious in the ways Sam Harris has tried to do, for example, and his partner, Annika Harris, who I've had lots of um, interaction with and kind of done some work with. Um, I think it's all very exciting times. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've got no idea either way, but I'm always fascinated to read someone's perspective. I seem to remember him and Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris, that is, and Daniel Dennett going back and forth on this question of free will for the longest time. And I think I read every word and I was still none the wiser when I came to the end of it. But which I suppose brings on, I mean, this might just be an issue of one here, but I mean, is there an argument here that, you know, evolved primates, primates as we are with our eight brains, that, you know, pondering the meaning of life and trying to fit in, you know, the size of the universe, we're just not equipped for it on a physical level. I mean, we seem to be the, only, we are the only species that sits around pondering the meaning of life. I'm, I'm sure. I mean, it, it, I mean, is this an adaptation? I mean, what, what is the point of this? How does this serve us in any way? Yeah. I mean, that's definitely a possibility that we should take seriously. There's no reason to think if creatures that have evolved for survival are going to be able to uncover all of the secrets of the universe Although, on the other hand, it's pretty spectacular that we've done so well. You know, we've traced back the universe 13 billion years to its origins. It's just quite extraordinary. But I, but that might be a possibility. Um, but I, I see no reason in to accept defeat just yet. I think this fine-tuning thing is weird, doesn't fit with our current worldview. But as I try to show in the book, I think there are coherent possibilities for explaining it and i think the reason we're not taking them seriously is not because they don't fit the evidence or they're incoherent just it's just because for cultural reasons they don't fit with how we've got used to thinking about reality so i guess that's what i'm trying to persuade people to do to not be so dogmatic just as i think many secular atheists are critical of religious people for being dogmatic but i want them to sort of think well maybe there's a bit of dogmatism in being skeptical of where this fine tuning seems to be pointing towards yeah i mean keeping an open mind, open mind rather is paramount is it but i suppose i think i've not really asked the question uh, i mean obviously if, if we were to accept the premise that secular atheism uh, doesn't provide meaning or is kind of antithetical to the idea of meaning how could what you propose provide meaning in that sense this kind of in between uh way of thinking how does this provide meaning in a way that secular atheism seems incapable of yeah i mean as i say most of the book is just a cold-blooded argument for cosmic purposes i call it whether it's true or not and look i don't i don't want to say secular atheists can't have a meaningful life i i think you i, I don't go for the extreme view that if there's no purpose to the universe, it's all pointless. You know, we might as well kill ourselves. The Christian philosopher William Lane Craig argues for that. He says, we might as well kill each other. Um, also, the antinatalist atheist, um, oh, my mind's gone blank, who thinks it's immoral to have kids because the universe is so pointless. But at, but at the other extreme, the secular atheist might say, um, there probably isn't cosmic purpose, but even if there is, 
it would be irrelevant to the meaning of our lives. I think that's too far the other way. I think we can have meaningful lives without cosmic purpose through kindness, creativity, the pursuit of knowledge. But if there is a purpose to the universe, if we can take that idea seriously, I think there's a potential perhaps for more meaning in our lives. If you, we want our lives to make a difference, if you can contribute in some small way to the purpose of the whole of reality, that's bloody huge, right? And this, that, that would be as big a difference as you can imagine making. So I try to sketch out how we can potentially have a more meaningful life by engaging with this idea and how I've found in my own life a greater sense of peace and purpose from engaging with this perspective. That's a great answer. And I, I might be a little bit unfair just to throw this at you in the in the two minutes we've got. But I, I'm, I'm kind of wondering what do you think might get closer to the answers there I mean, in terms of the, the universe and fine tuning and meaning? I mean, will it be philosophy? Will it be a, a technological advancement? Because a lot of people perhaps maybe unfairly will look at the field of philosophy and say it's not really generating any new ideas. It's keeping good older uh, ideas alive perhaps in some way i spoke to somebody last week who said you know philosophy's not really improved on anything the greeks did modern philosophy that is which perhaps a bit harsh to maybe get your opinion on that well we are living in a time when people society doesn't really understand what the hell the point of philosophy is and what the you know what the point of it is and i think that's very unfortunate because you cannot not do philosophy if you the more you get to sort of foundational theoretical questions in physics you bounce up against these theoretical questions and if you don't have if you if you say oh i don't believe in philosophy what happens is you just get people doing bad philosophy uh, <laughs> stephen hawking in one of his books famously started off saying philosophy is dead Da, da, da. And then in, later in the book starts doing very bad philosophy about free will and so on. Because, you know, not because he's an idiot, but he hasn't read the literature, exposed his views to peer review. But one thing I've done in, in my last book, Galileo's Error, was trace back the problem of consciousness to the foundations of the scientific revolution, the philosophical foundations, the philosophy designed by Galileo, the father of modern science. And I try to show that the problem of consciousness is baked into these in underlying philosophical assumptions of science. And if we want to solve it, we need to have to re readdress that. So there's always philosophy. There's always worldview in the background. And you need to engage with it or you'll just be doing it badly. Philip, you did beautifully there, summarizing that in the, the mean amount of time I gave you. Thank you for that. Uh, a full-throated defense, full defense of philosophy there. That, that has me convinced for sure. So uh, maybe you could let people know where they can find more of your writing and your book. Oh, website. Well, the book's called Why the Purpose of the Universe. I hope it's accessible to a general audience. It's quite cheap. There's an audio version and everything. philipgoffphilosophy.com. I've got lots of videos and interviews with Joe Rogan and the other people. Um, I had spent a lot of time arguing on Twitter, philip underscore goff, philip with one L. Uh, YouTube channel, you, uh, Mind Chat where I, I do with a philosopher with the polar opposite opinion to me on consciousness. I think it's everywhere. He thinks it doesn't exist. And we interview, <laughs> scient we interview scientists and philosophers. We try to model constructive disagreement. So, um, yeah, spend too much time on Twitter, but that's about it. Oh, my last book, Galileo's Error, is more on the problem of consciousness and panpsychism. The new book, Why the Purpose of the Universe, is more on on that as well, but also on this question of is taking seriously the idea that there might be a purpose to the universe. Philip, this has flown by. It's been absolutely fascinating. And I'll, I'll be checking out your book, of course. So thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure.
Thanks, Stephen. Lovely chatting. See you again. See you again. Take care. Fascinating. All the big topics there. Philip, very eloquent, knowledgeable chap. I'll definitely be checking his book out. You should be seeing some of the links to those things in the show notes now, rather. Sorry, the comments, rather. So go and have a look and we shall be bringing in our next guest, Natalie Martinek. How are you? Welcome to Outward Unleashed. Oh, thanks, Stephen. Thanks for having me. It's entirely our pleasure. Uh, maybe before we get into some of these big topics, you can let our listeners and viewers know what keeps you busy. How would you describe your work? I'm fascinated by bad behavior that I see in institutions, in society, in families, in our friend groups. And um, I like to unpack what's going on driving our behavior uh, when we all want to have a peaceful world, I imagine. So that's what keeps me busy. That is fascinating. I think people are kind of drawn to bad behavior in a, in a sense, you know, far more than good behavior, just in my my kind of uh, anecdotal observations. Would you say that's true? Yeah, I think uh, we like trauma. We like things that are entertaining <laughs> and stimulating and peace is not that sexy or interesting unless, of course, you're interested in how peace it, you know, the conditions that create peace, which I think we should all be interested in and actively working towards. But um, yeah, humans love drama, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, for sure. And I, I, I suppose that, you know, the the the, uh, the rise of the sort of true crime uh, genre has just gone from strength to strength in recent years, hasn't it? I think we think we like bad behavior in conjunction with something grisly as well. A lot of our darkest instincts seem to uh, capture the attention. But you're, this isn't purely just mor morbid curiosity with you, obviously, because you're you're researching it, you're trying to unpack it and understand, understand it. And not only that, provide ways for people to deal with it and not be manipulated in certain ways. So maybe, you, I mean, one of the key focuses you have is narcissism, of course. Maybe you could explain to people exactly what narcissism is, because I think uh, this term narcissism sometimes gets colloquially used and not necessarily clinically used in the way it should. H how are you defining it? Yeah, it's a, a great opening question because narcissism is used mainstream by everyone. I think we all like to call people who be behave badly narcissists, whereas it has a clinical, it, it is a clinical diagnostic label and it describes uh, certain personality traits where that person is controlling, domineering, entitled, self-obsessed, uh, um, you know, think they're superior to everyone else and everyone else is inferior. So there are people who live like this and uh, think they are the sun and everyone revolves around them. Um, whereas when I talk about narcissism, I'm talking about interpersonal narcissism, which is our tendency to um, want to dominate or try to dominate in order to feel comfortable, safe, secure. And the reason why we're doing that is because we're likely trying to protect ourselves, defend ourselves. Uh, we feel insecure or threatened by what the person is saying or doing or not saying or not doing. And it's mostly unconscious. So I talk about the unconscious automatic behaviors we all have that we reenact with each other in order to um, feel better about ourselves or feel stronger, especially when the other person um, is doing something that's making us feel a little bit inferior, or inadequate or insecure. Oh, right. Well, please, I mean, feel free to give me an example of one of those. What, what are some of these things that I could perhaps do, do better to recognize in myself, in my interactions with my, my fellow humans? Yeah. So if you've had an interaction with someone, a conversation that you get along with, and then 
you after that interaction and you thought it was fine and you started feeling afterwards a deep shame or angry or guilty something happened in that interaction that made you feel at, uh, that you weren't good enough that you weren't inadequate that you were inadequate but it wasn't obvious in that conversation what that could be so there was a little bit of a power struggle and there was something that um, occurred in the way that the other person was talking to you where they were dominating or they were telling you that their version of reality is superior to yours or more correct than yours. But because we're so used to these types of interactions, because we probably grew up with them, they're just in our society, we wouldn't know what that thing was until we started to start pay attention and go, okay, what are they doing that uh, is bringing up this sense of inferiority? Not that they're causing it, that there's something in this interaction that is um, not doing, it's, it's not great for me and I need to find that out. That's interesting. So I think we've all had interactions where we've come away feeling less than great about it. And we sometimes can't really put our finger on it. You know, there were no raised voices. There were no open disagreements, no kind of hostility or threats, but something's a little off. So I suppose if you're, I mean, you're, you're kind of unconsciously being dominated by somebody else in a sense, is the person who's making you feel like this aware they are doing this? Is it an unconscious thing for them or can it be a, a multitude of things? Mm, it's a good question because it depends on the individual. Some individuals intentionally act this way because, again, they're feeling, well, they need to feel superior. So they're doing things like what's known as gaslighting, where you share your opinion about something and they counter it with, no, this is the way it is. And they say it with such authority that if you're not, can, if you're not true to yourself or you're not very secure in your own way of thinking, you might start to believe that that's actually the better way of viewing things and then you adopt it. So, uh, and once that person, you allow that person to do that to you that one time, it's more likely to happen again and again and again. And if there's someone who um, are, is a bit vengeful or trying to get back at you for something you said or did or didn't do that made them feel inferior, they're going to keep that up to, eventually erode your version of reality, your grip on reality till you start feeling like, you know, you're losing your mind. Okay. So I suppose, I mean, just interestingly, I mean, wh where would you say, I mean, we, in what population would you find the most uh, number of narcissists in, in, in terms of, you know, sex and gender, would you say it would be male or female? Is it, is it pretty even? Cause I think you would find in generally, and I, I, I imagine this is correct to say that most extreme behavior is more often found in the male population than the female population. Where, where does narcissism fit in the whole gender divide? This is interesting because um, I think it depends which narcissisms have been studied. So, I think the one that has been more obvious and therefore easily studied are the overt forms of narcissism like malignant or grandiose narcissism. So you think about political leaders or public figures where they need constant attention and affection and to be in the spotlight, whether it's positive or negative news. Um, so those are the more obvious, that's a more obvious form of narcissism. So it's more easily studied and assessed. Then there's other form of narcissism, which are it's covert. So vulnerable narcissism, where a person centers their victimhood, and that's the way they assume control over someone else, because uh, people who are open hearted and like to, you know, care for other people, nurturers tend to be drawn in by people who uh, 
you know, feel weaker or that they pity. But really, those some of those people use that to take advantage of the do-gooders and control and dominate them. So that is less obvious. And I think this predominates a lot. If you think about women bullying women in the workplace and women on women aggression specifically, these are the things that we don't, aren't as obvious. So by the time you realize you're being bullied by another woman, it's already too late. So the covert becomes more overt. So that's until that became known, it was harder to study. So in terms of who's more narcissistic, it's tough to say because we all have these traits in ourselves. So, I mean, I suppose then the question can be, I mean, you just mentioned then about, you know, politicians and famous public figures and a few names instantly come to mind who, who could could fit that that uh, kind of uh, definition. Uh, is, is there a case really of that society or certain, uh, you know, uh, prestige positions in society, you know, wealth, fame, uh, rewards having a sense of narcissism? Is this uh, an evolutionary trait we have perhaps? Yeah, I think it's associated with our ability to survive and succeed in any sort of environment. It's part of tribalism. So if you think about groups who um, follow particular or they're part of a particular movement, um, you know, there's a group think that's established and that's necessary to have pride about your, your tribe and to enable it to survive and to support each other. Um, so uh, if you look at also institutions, workplaces, corporate environments, narcissistic leadership tends to be the preferred leadership. Um, so people come across as very competent and confident and um, charming, charismatic, and these are often associated with being competent. But unfortunately, it's not the same thing as being competent but these are the things that attract other people and woo other people to form alliances and loyalties. And before you know it, people are being elevated for positions um, or status in any social setting because of how much you get along with them. But what some of these people are doing are taking advantage of uh, you know, their attractiveness or their charisma and the naivete of other people in order to bring them on board and then become protected by them. So this is a feature of society or what can be called as a cluster B society or cluster B organization, cluster B being the um, suite of narcissists of, uh, sorry, what's known as personality disorders, like narcissistic personality disorder, uh, borderline personality disorder. These, these have become features of our everyday interactions in some cases. Yeah, I will definitely pick up on that in a second because I think that ties into my, one of my next questions. But before I do that, if anyone's got any questions for Natalie about narcissism and her work, uh, please get them in the comments now and I'll get them to her as soon as possible. But this idea of kind of personality disorders and narcissism, it, it kind of tangentially brings me on to another uh, topic and issue that I know you're focused on, something I've been focused on for quite a lot, not in the same mm -hmm. sense, of course, but this idea of social justice activism. Now, I, I've, I've vocally opposed this for the longest time, even when it's channeled in the direction of causes I, you know, care about and agree with, such as, you know, maybe environmental issues, anti-racism, things like that, because I tend to find these very tribal groups of activists do more harm for them causes than than good and there's a lot of i think what's been termed virtue signaling in involved where it's more about affirmation and getting recognition rather than affecting any change and i suppose just to tie into your work is this 
I mean, it feels almost taboo and a little bit naughty of me to say this, but when I look at some of these individuals, my my radar or my alarm rather goes off in the sense of personality disorder. I can't necessarily define it, but I know something abnormal is going on and I know instantly I don't want to spend a second longer in their company. Now, please, can you explain what perhaps is going on here in the in the realm of social justice activism that links into your work? Okay, so, I mean, this is a, a tricky topic because activism is important. There's lots of injustices yes. in this world, in society, in, uh, you know, our communities that need to be addressed and people are genuine, people with genuine disadvantage and, um, you know, oppression. And so there's a need for uh, rectifying and uh, improving situations for others. And then there's what I call the social injustice warrior, which is what you've just described. People who get attracted to a cause and they make it their whole passion, which sounds okay, but then basically the cause becomes their means for attention and significance and uh, a sense of feeling superior because in order to feel like they could do something, they have to choose a more vulnerable group to protect or defend or support or bring in, you know, to support anti-racism or whatever the, the cause is. So you need to have a group that is lesser than you, more oppressed than you, uh, more vulnerable than you for you to be able to um, use them to, you know, advocate for their needs. But the way you're doing it is really not necessarily going to help them because you probably don't have likely don't have the skills to be able to do the things you're advocating for, but you think you do because you have a lot of humanitarian goals. And, but what you're doing is just signaling, signaling and, you know, creating drama and keeping it alive, stoking it so that you can continually have attention. So the way you would do that is through being divisive, um, polarizing and um, in doing so, your efforts might not actually have any benefit to that group that you care about and can actually cause harm. So that's, that's the a social question. injustice warrior. Social injustice warrior. I will be stealing that, Natalie. Thank you very much. Um, so, I mean, how do we kind of reduce or limit our own contribution to this never-ending cycle of, of drama and conflict that seems to be caused by these kind of personality types and, and narcissists? Yeah, so... A main framework that I've drawn on for many years is called Cartman's Drama Triangle. So basically it describes three roles that we continually reenact. And you'll see that once I talk about it and you start to see it everywhere. So in order for there to be a perpetrator, there needs to be a victim. And as long as there's a victim and a perpetrator, then something needs to be brought to justice. Therefore, uh, the third role is the rescuer or the hero, the savior who comes in to bring justice and protect the victim. But sometimes the perpetrator or the victim is the actual perpetrator. But depending on our perspective or our, the, the lens, the information we're using to decide who's the victim and who's the perpetrator, we might be trying to save the victim who's the perpetrator, which happens a lot in bullying situations. The bully comes, makes themselves the victim, poor me, and you feel bad for them because you're not hearing the other side of the story. You're not thinking, that there is another side of the story and you start to feel sorry for them and want to support them and feel like there's been a great injustice and you come in to want to protect them but what you're doing is protecting the bully and the real target is you know has been smeared and everyone's turned against them so it's being aware of our tendency to be drawn into this drama and one of the roles of the drama triangle 
So as soon as I go, there's a victim perpetrator, I'm often, you know, triggered to want to do something because I don't like injustice, but I might be contributing to the continual drama. And by me jumping in and trying to save person who's not suffering life and death situation, but what I perceive as the victim or the, or the persecutor, um, I can start to be seen as the victim or the persecutor by one of the other people in, in this little triangle. So be aware of the roles that we're seeing ourselves and others in and often resist trying to jump in and save until you have more information to work with. That's a good answer. So when you said Cartman's Triangle there, my mind, like many listeners, have went straight to South Park. Then I quickly checked myself and just thought, don't be stupid. Cartman's clearly a philosopher you've never heard of. Maybe you can just clear that up for me. Yes. Yeah, so it's Stephen Cartman. Cartman, he's a psychiatrist. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad different. you cleared that up. <laughs> I was literally like, oh, so you're a South Park fan. And I thought, not that yeah. stupid. That's clearly <laughs> stupid. So somebody I haven't heard of. Thank you for clearing that up. Um, another question we've had from Ray J is, uh, does the education system not create narcissistic behavior now? Does it not create? I think they're asking if the education system creates narcissistic behavior. There's the, the general system we have for education. I think it can because, again, you have some children who are very good at pandering to adults and adults believing them. So if they have great excuses or they're, you know, mean to other kids, but they, you know, bat their eyelids and, um, you know, are seem super sweet or super smart in class, then they get away with being able to be terrible to other kids. And so if there's no incentive, there's no discipline, there's no acknowledgement of this behavior, then there's no incentive for the child to, you know, change and act differently. So that child ends up growing up into potentially an adult bully, um, someone who features strongly these narcissistic traits, um, because there hasn't been a correction because they've discovered they can get away with certain behaviors. Um, same with the child who, if you view that child from a victim lens and you don't see that they have strengths and resources to work with, um, then they get away with using their victimhood unintentionally because they're children to be able to get through life and have people do things for them. So again, as they get older, they discover they've discovered uh, techniques to, to be able to have their needs met by other people. So there's no incentive for them to change. So they end up becoming more of the vulnerable narcissistic type of um, behaviors. Okay. Well, I mean, talking of uh, incentives, you, I mean, you eloquently described the, the, the triangle for us there and how to reduce our impact on drama, but I'm supposed to be many people looking at, like we've rightly pointed out, narcissism can get you the, the top job anywhere. It can make you famous. You can be a president, perhaps. Some people might just be looking at that as a model for success and thinking that's that's the way you do it, and I'm going to kind of mirror that behavior. What would you What would you say to that approach? I, I mean, is it the best? Is it the best way for fame and fortune? Is that just a, a sad truth of the matter? Uh, it's one of the, I think, the more popular ways to fame and fortune, especially nowadays, you can become an influencer. And if you follow the right approaches and, you know, work the algorithms to your advantage, uh, you can be famous for just doing anything. And um, so we as a society are enabling this because we're the ones who are making these people famous. They don't just happen. They need a fan base. They need, you know, uh, agents and other um, enablers to be able to 
get take advantage of that person and and their fame or their talent. So we are part of this problem if we see this as a problem. Yeah, you mentioned the uh, the influencer aspect of things there, which is which only really could go from strength to strength thanks to something like the internet. Uh, is the internet just creating more and more narcissists? Is that is that a tool that's being weaponized in the great war of narcissists? Yeah, I think so. I think uh, social media specifically and and you know video YouTube our ability to just be seen all the time that definitely you know creates an addiction where you do something, you get a lot of positive feedback, you feel good, you want more of it, more of it, more of it, because if we don't have a good sense, solid sense of security, we have our own things that, that we have, relationships in our life that are nourishing, then we don't necessarily need these other avenues to get the attention and the affection and the love and admiration. So it, it becomes addictive and you don't necessarily realize it's happening. But the more you get that attention, the more you become dependent on it and your whole life and actions become about that attention. So you're, you know, you're occupied all the time by how do I get, how do I maintain this attention or how do I keep growing it? So it does, you do lose your mind a little bit. You lose your grip on reality because this is not how we necessarily function in, in a society that, you know, paying too much attention to yourself is, is never going to be a great thing. And it's, I agree. It, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, how could you, how, how best to empower people then to recognize when they're, you know, in the presence of a narcissist or being, you know, directly manipulated by a narcissist? Are, are they like trigger signs, you know, warning signs you could, you could, you could say that might jump out to people more than others? Well, again, it depends on the, the individual, but what tends to happen uh, is we get attracted to certain people. So say we're not, if I'm not the narcissistic one in this example, um, I'll meet someone and I will think, wow, they're really cool and they like me. Wow. Okay. That's our number one red flag that I need this other person to approve of me and accept me. And um, I feel a bit inferior or intimidated. And the fact that they like me makes me feel better about myself. That is already your setup. You're set up to enter into some sort of, if you, if you can, if the relationship continues, there's already a power differential in this relationship. They're already better than you and superior to you because of how you see yourself in relation to them, not necessarily how they see themselves in relation to you. But if we're talking about a narcissist, they already think they're better than you. But part of their thing is getting as many people to like them. So they keep supplying themselves with attention and affection and resources and whatever else, whatever else they need. So they're going to do things to make you feel good being around them. So you're going to want to connect with them. You're going to want to bond with them. So seeing that there's somebody who barely knows me, but is saying all these great things about me, wants to give me all these gifts or, uh, you know, opportunities based on the tiny fraction of information they know about me, I'm actually suspicious. So that, that I think is the one thing that we can do at the very beginning of our interactions. Um, some of us are very easily trusting because people make us feel good. So therefore we're going to trust them, but that doesn't make that person trustworthy. And we find out down the track that they uh, were not trustworthy. Um, if they were, you know, constant at the beginning, giving lots of attention, affection, um, compliments, etc. down the track, the first time I do something that annoys them or goes against their expectations, I'm going to hear about it. And then I'm going to feel guilty and I'm going to want to make it up to them. And so I start pandering to them to restore this power dynamic. 
until it happens and again and again and again. And each time the severity likely increases. So again, this is with somebody who's high on the narcissistic scale because you keep doing things that goes against their fantasy and ideal of you. And so they get very upset that they're betrayed. You're doing something that betrays them and they make you feel it uh, until you do something to correct it. But they never do this to you. If you tell them that they're doing the wrong thing by you, they'll do everything to make you feel guilty for ever saying that to them. And they'll find all sorts of defenses and arguments to, yeah, make you wrong. So there's an expectation that you're always going to appeal and please them and placate them, but they don't do that with you ever. They're always right. That's a good answer. Uh, and a good question from Paul is, is narcissism learned? So, I mean, is uh, like a lot of clinical conditions, I, I suppose they, they can be hereditary, I imagine. Uh, is narcissism learned behavior? Is it something that you can be predisposed to in a way? I think it's, it's helpful to think about a developmental um, trajectory. So as children, babies were born completely dependent on our caregivers to give us love, attention, affection, nourishment, safety, all that. So that is what narcissism is. It's something that we don't necessarily grow out of because we haven't developed independence, ability to regulate ourselves, to feel safe and secure with other people. We're hugely distrustful. Um, we haven't had our needs met. So we've had to discover ways to to get our needs met by other people, just as we have as babies, but it's unintentionally, it's automatic as babies and as children, you know, to a degree until, um, you know, certain things happen and we don't mature out of that. Um, so you see adults who are just emotionally dysregulated, immature children in adult bodies. So think of it like that. That might help understanding rather than something we learn. We could learn narcissistic behaviors in order to get ahead, like what was described with some influencers or becoming famous, if that's your goal. Um, so you just learn the methods or you adopt the methods to be that way, because that's what we know can work towards that success. But if we think about it as, uh, you know, traits, it's not necessarily learned. It's just something we never grew, outgrew. It's a good answer. And uh, you've said as well in your work that, you know, saying no is a superpower. What do you mean by that? In what situations is it empowering to, you know, say the word no? Uh, so if, say you're, you're in a work environment and, um, you know, you're just having, you, you meet with a, a boss or not necessarily boss, a colleague, and they start piling on you, they start telling you off for, for something, or they start dumping their, you know, emotional problems on you out of the blue and you didn't see it coming. No might be a good thing. And you don't necessarily need to say no, you say not now, or I see you have some stuff going on. This is not a good time. I'm busy. So there's different ways of saying no, but it's acknowledging that there's some behaviors that are not going to be helpful to me. They're going to help the other person. Um, but at my expense, sacrificing something and in myself, and then I have to deal with that later. So I'm just going to say no to this right now. So it does require confidence to be able to do that, which is harder when there is a power differential, like say uh, a boss or manager and you as the employee, harder to say no, but uh, it's just even thinking, I don't want this or not this um, can be very helpful towards ultimately creating some boundaries of how people can interact with you.
Yeah, that's well explained. Uh, Natalie, this has flown by. It's a fascinating topic, and I think we could probably all benefit to learn more about narcissists and, and how to manage them and just, you know, make sure we're not one. Maybe we are and we're not aware. That'd be the that'd be the biggest twist here, wouldn't it? Uh, maybe you can just let people know um, where they can find out more information about your work and, and your writing, please. Oh, thank you. So I write on the platform called Substack, and my uh, Substack is called Hacking Narcissism. And you could find me on the website, hackingnarcissism.com and on lots of socials like LinkedIn and X and Instagram. Thank you. Not Thanks for having me, Stephen. Our pleasure. Thank you very much for speaking to us. Take care. Have a great day. You too. Fascinating topic. Narcissism comes up a lot on, on this show. And I think it's probably something that affects the everyday person more than they no, I would care to know. So yeah, I'll definitely be look, checking out more of Natalie's work. Uh, thanks for all your excellent questions. As usual, keep them coming. It's at this point I need to remind you all that the next half of the show will stream uh, exclusively over on Locals. So make sure you follow and subscribe over there. It's free, by the way. So why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? Uh, so if you can all head over there now, uh, we'll be bringing in our next guest shortly uh, but another topic packed section uh second half of the atwood show coming your way uh just shooting from topic to topic i don't really know any other show that does this so uh stick around come and join us over at locals for the second half and i shall bring in our next guest now it's ernest scheider ernest how are you doing thanks for joining us great to be with you today Stephen. Well, that's our pleasure. Uh, maybe you could let our listeners and viewers know exactly what it is you do. Yeah, so my I'm a journalist and my day job is at Reuters where I write about the critical minerals and mining industries. That's basically the stuff that goes to electronics and electric vehicles like lithium and copper. Uh, but I've written a book based on these industries called The War Below, Lithium, Copper, and the Global Battle to Power Our Lives. And it really dives into the tough choices our world is facing as this green energy transition accelerates, as a lot more attention is paid towards how we fight climate change, and as more and more battery power devices basically are cropping up everywhere in our everyday lives. And the book really goes into the tension point around where do we get the building blocks for all of these devices, and what are the tough choices that we're willing to make if we want to go green. And it's a very human centered story. It's not a story for geologists or investors. It's um, it's a story that really matters to everyone because these are topics that affect everyone. Agreed. That's that's a great answer. So much to so much to work with there now. So yeah, I suppose I suppose those of us living in the Western world who have a kind of lithium battery in every device they own more or less. I can't I wouldn't even be able to tell you how many devices I have that are rechargeable in, in some sense. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then, the, you know, obviously you throw cars into the mix as a, a new emerging technology. They're becoming more common. And this is all kind of geared towards around, I suppose, renewable energy. But a lot, a lot of us are not aware or that we're quite ignorant of where these materials come from what processes have to happen what conditions are created in order to bring us these rechargeable devices so maybe you can talk a little bit about that for us please sure so many of these devices are powered by lithium ion batteries and as the name implies lithium is a, a key component of these batteries and uh, right now places like the united states the united kingdom don't produce a lot of lithium um, those batteries also use depending on the chemistry 
uh, co uh, cobalt or nickel. Um, they can also uh, use large amounts of copper. And then wiring, of course, generally uses a lot amount of copper. Um, so not just inside an engine, but, but you know, think of large um, uh, wiring uh, to connect different devices. It's a lot of copper there as well. When you just look at the sheer number of um, devices that are going mainstream across our everyday lives, and you just sort of add it up across uh, different populations of different countries around the world, then you just start to see the stark demand for forecast. And, and then you look at this current supply. Um, there are very places around the world that we could be producing more, but are not producing these. Um, and what I wanted to explore in the book was that was that tension point right now. I think um, too often consumers, especially in the Western world, are very just, um, they sort of just expect you show up to a store and you're able to buy any number of devices um, and sort of take it home with you. Uh, but really the supply chain there, the, the creation of those goods um, can be long and complex and can in some cases be produced at ESG standards that might not be up to what Western consumers would expect. And so and therein lies the tension and the rub. You know, what are the choices we're willing to make if we want these green energy devices, if we want all of these electric gadgets and gizmos that have really sort of crept into forming the underpinnings of our everyday lives. Um, they're everywhere and we need to vastly increase our global production of many of these critical minerals and metals if we're going to continue to have them be part of our everyday lives. That's great. I mean, that's a great answer. And I suppose that that's keeping in with kind of like the environmental yes, uh, aspect yeah. of it, the, the impact on the planet. And just in general, how how difficult is it to get people to really care about this issue? Because there isn't a bigger issue, really, is the in the grand scale of things, it's the destruction of the planet. Not a lot comes yeah. after that. Yet people are more animated by smaller political disagreements they, they seem to kind of i think perhaps see the destruction of the planet as such an abstract foreign concept that they can't quite visualize how difficult is it to get people engaged on this issue well i think when you look at the scope of the devices that are using these materials i mean for me as the author of the war below it was it was um important to broaden this out beyond the transportation sector and say, this is an issue that matters to more than just EVs, because not every consumer has an EV now. Um, the adoption rate is growing, but it's not a majority of people. Um, and so the book looks at certainly proposed mines across the United States and really the world, um, but it also looks at sort of end uses. And I have a whole chapter where I look at leaf blowers, which might sound sort of innocuous and basic, but um, you know, I, I wanted to pick sort of a very average um, a device that's used in many homes across uh, the United States and throughout the world, really, um, and sort of to use it as an illustrative point as to um, how many of these battery power devices are being used across every, every part of our lives. And so a few years ago, um, I got a home with a yard and decided to buy an electric lawnmower and an electric weed whacker, and yes, an electric leaf blower. And I went down this rabbit hole of trying to figure out where did the metals inside that battery come from? You know, did the copper come from Peru where there's been huge protests by farmers against copper mining trucks because of the dust that they kick up and pollute crops? And did the cobalt come from the Democratic Republic of the Congo where sometimes children as young as six or seven can be part of the production supply chain? Um, it's what's called artisanal mining. And sometimes these children can be maimed or, or even killed. Um, did the lithium get extracted in northern Chile and then get shipped across the Pacific Ocean to a battery facility and then get shipped back across the Pacific Ocean and ended up in in my leaf blower? Um, I couldn't figure out any of these 
answers to these questions. Um, and that's just for a leaf blower. So for me, when you extrapolate it across all of the other electronic power devices, not just electric vehicles that power our everyday lives, um, it was important for me to bring those points to the reader here in the war below and just say like, hey, these these are things we have to be thinking about because you don't just show up to a store and uh, you know get these things off the shelf. You know, Teslas don't grow on trees. All of these things come from somewhere. Yeah, and you named a few places there, and I suppose a lot of people will be wondering: Are those places specifically uh, producing uh, as much as they are because they are kind of material rich in them areas, or is it a case of just it's easier to exploit a cheap labor market uh, and import things, export rather to the West? Well, the, um, the three countries I mentioned in those examples are, are very, very rich in, in various supplies of metals. I mean, Peru is a massive copper deposit, um, Chile, huge copper, as well as lithium deposits. Uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo has large cobalt and copper deposits. And so all of these countries are very resource rich. Um, that's not to say that other countries aren't as well, but those three do tend to have um, a larger lion's share of some of these critical minerals. Increasingly, what we are seeing is countries across the world um, are waking up to the power that their resource deposits will give them as this energy transition accelerates. And so um, countries like Peru, like Chile, like the DRC are realizing that they can use this for their economic benefit. Um, the question, I think, for the 21st century is how do we as a world respond to the rising demand and what standards for mining are we going to insist on um, as this new transition happens from a crude oil-based global economy to one that's increasingly powered by critical minerals and materials. Um, you know, we didn't have this collective discussion point 100, 150 years ago when the petroleum-based economy was taking off. And, and what did we get out of that? We got armed conflicts across the world over oil. We got climate change. We got a cartel that controls a huge chunk of the world's oil. And so what I argue in the book is that if the world is not careful, we could see many of the same mistakes happen. In fact, several analysts have uh, already predicted or, or said that the potential is there for armed conflict in the 21st century over copper, which sounds sort of mind boggling when you think about it. But I think that just lays bare the stark demand for just one of these critical minerals. Um, and then you realize there's four or five or six other types of critical minerals out there that are just as important and just as essential for many of these electronic devices. And then you start to see sort of the sheer complexity of the supply chain that really requires uh, everyday consumers to be thinking through this more. And so I, I hope that the, the war below actually just sparks a conversation um, among various peoples to just think through what is the kind of 21st century economy we would like. Yeah. And I suppose, I mean, if it was possible to convince everybody that this is a huge problem, how then do you get to the point where you can convince them no longer to have all these, you know, luxury electronic devices and everyday appliances and, and things like that? Are there are there sustainable, more eco-friendly, less, uh, you know, oppressive causing uh, materials out there to use? Is, is this a, is this a technological limitation that we currently have that can be overcome? Well, one of the areas that I explore in the book is um, if if we agree that we do need to have more metals and minerals for the foreseeable future, and I think most people say that we would, what are the standards by which we think mining can be done in safe and acceptable ways? And so I chronicle the creation of this um, mining standards organization, which sort of sounds like a boring, innocuous topic, um, but it was started by Tiffany and Company, the famed jewelry 
uh, iconic jewelry company that's known across the world, obviously for its engagement rings and other pieces of jewelry. And they use a lot of metal, obviously, uh, just like many electronics manufacturers. And they found themselves sort of going through the metaphorical dark and saying, okay, we know we have to buy gold and silver and platinum and other metals, but we're not a mining company, we're a jewelry company. So how do we ensure that we're buying safe and ethically sourced metals? And so they helped start what's known as the Initiative for Responsible Mining Assurance, or IRMA. And one chapter in the book explores the history of how Tiffany helped form IRMA and set it up as this global standard that many of the world's mining, largest mining companies are now using for their benefit uh, to show their customers that the mines that they operate are adhering to these IRMA standards. So an example would be Albemarle, the world's largest lithium company, which does operate in Northern Chile as well as elsewhere. It's gone through IRMA certification. And so it's able to tell its customers that include Tesla and others that this is how we produce lithium at this site. Here's how we uh, adhere to water standards. Here's how we remunerate our people. Here's how we would handle potential safety situations, uh, so on and so forth. Um, and that tells the world that the lithium produced at that site matches up in certain areas to certain standards that Irma has. And it basically brings transparency to the industry. And now what we have is other manufacturers, including Ford, BMW, Microsoft, and others are really underpinning Irma. And so they're saying, we recognize that we're going to need more metals and critical min minerals as this energy transition accelerates. We are going to make sure that they are produced at the safest and most ethically clean way possible. And so exploring that for the book was, um, I think, important for the narrative to bring to the reader this idea that there are efforts out there to make mining as secure and clean and safe as possible. That's a great answer. And we, I suppose, I mean, the population in general is getting more um, conscious about, you know, ethical capitalism yeah. or ethical clothing and products and things like that. But I suppose it, is there a trade-off in the sense that, you know, the general population may be, uh, may be told rather to choose between ethical and safe sourcing of materials versus uh, affordable prices on their goods. And typically the, the price thing tends to win out. That's, that's, that's a good question, Stephen. I mean, obviously most consumers, whether you're an individual person or a large corporation building something, price does tend to be a huge factor when you're deciding whether or not to make a purchase of, of any number of goods whether that's the raw materials to build computers or whether that's food that you put on your table every day. Um, interestingly, what we're seeing, and I explore this partially in the book, is the concept of should metals that are produced at higher standards be priced at a premium? Um, that is, should you pay more knowing that the metal you produced, uh, the people in that facility were paid a living wage, that they weren't um, mistreated, that the water and other um, physical landscapes were not uh, polluted or, or destroyed, really, as part of the production process. And um, I, I think that we'll start to see that grow in the coming years. Uh, we certainly see it in the textile industry right now. Um, I think increasingly consumers are realizing that they don't want to buy clothes that were made in sweatshops uh, on the other side of the world. And so you're starting to see consumers act with their pocketbooks around that, even if that means a t-shirt or a pair of jeans might cost a little bit more. Um, so will we start to see this in the metal sphere? I would argue and, and do partially argue in the book that, that we probably will as consumers wake up to uh, what can be some atrocious conditions in some mining projects in some parts of the world. Yeah, and I suppose, I mean, the people that really have 
the, I suppose the influence and the authority to affect change as well as corporations are our elected officials. Yes. Uh, how big of an, an issue do you think this will be at the next uh, American election cycle, perhaps? Because, I mean, to me, it seems like uh, I wouldn't imagine there's much appetite for it on the Republican side. Uh, and I don't know how much the Democrats would want to lean on this as an issue to gain votes. What, what's, what's your feeling and perspective here? Well, uh, you know, I, I will say as an American, I, I, I hate to prognosticate this election, right? Uh, you know, it's anything could happen here, certainly. Um, I, I do think we, when we look at the landscape right now, uh, especially around critical minerals, we see the Inflation Reduction Act, which was signed by President Biden a few years ago and has had um, um, uh, a strong reaction from the mining industry. Um, a strong incentive to produce more in the United States and countries that have free trade deals with the United States. Um, meanwhile, former President Trump, the leading nominee for the Republican nomination, has talked about potentially um, uh, undermining parts or all of the IRA um, if he is reelected. Um, so there's sort of two main tension points, I would say, around that. Um, but to your point, Stephen, I mean, not I don't, when we're directly talking about should we approve certain mines or not approve certain mines in the United States, um, neither side seems to want to sort of directly take that on uh, because invariably people live near some projects or are affected by projects and, and they vote. Um, so in a place where every vote counts, you know, oftentimes maybe you don't want to directly um, make a, a strong statement about a particular project. There have been some exceptions. You know, we did see uh, President Biden put uh, at least two, two or three mining projects in the United States on hold in recent years, basically iced them out. Uh, and we'll see what happens this year, given that it's an election year. Um, and President Trump, even three months before the 2020 election, uh, basically froze the development of this massive copper deposit in Alaska known as Pebble. And I explore that history uh, in the book, In the War Below. Um, so not just because, you know, you have a Republican in office or a Democrat does not mean that either would sort of a, 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 um, adhere to the stereotypical party platforms, you know, they've each taken really interesting stances when it comes to mining. Um, because mining, while it is while it is connected to oil and gas and that they're both energy related spheres, you know, I mean, oil is basically putting a straw in the ground, if you'll excuse the sort of, you know, oversimplification. Um, but mining can be very big and loud and noisy and you need dynamite and you have a giant hole in the ground and you basically affect the landscape for generations. And so there is an obviously physical change there that doesn't always endear itself to people that live nearby. But mines produce these treasures that we need in order to have not only modern technologies, but devices to fight climate change. So therein lies the tension and the rub. Okay. And, and, and tight, I mean, keeping on, I mean, we've spoke about sort of the environmental impact of it. Not, and we've not really necessarily spoke as much about the ethical uh, concerns surrounding it and it was really interesting the way you kind of summarized at the start of this conversation about your leaf blower and you having absolutely no way of knowing how this uh, how these materials were sourced and who, who perhaps suffered and what the consequences were which is a really really you know uh, interesting way of uh, appraising these things but I mean a lot of people would I mean assume that for products uh, that were sold in in the West, they would automatically be a code of standards that would say uh, exempts uh, materials coming from perhaps child labor or exploitation mm -hmm. and things like that. Is that not the case or is it a, a case of it's just too difficult to regulate? Um, it's certainly, you know, I mean, most established manufacturers, especially in the West, do would not consciously sort of buy materials that are perhaps at lower ESG standards. 
Um, the problem, because it's some of these supply chains can be so opaque that you might not even know. I mean, in the cobalt example that I was talking about earlier, um, oftentimes the cobalt could come from an artisanal miner, maybe a child or, or um, someone else in a family, and then get that rock would get bought by a middleman and then sent to a distributor who would then sort of just ship the rock through the supply chain and it would make its way to a processor. So there might be a very hard time taking that from mine all the way to battery and being able to source that directly. Um, and so sometimes it's just very unclear whether or not the cobalt or other critical mineral that you are buying um, got its start in a true ESG-friendly or true ethically sourced manner, despite the best intentions of manufacturers out there. And so what we've seen, and what I chronicle this a little bit in the book, is the argument from miners in the West is that if you want to get, we can guarantee that you'll have ethically sourced and ESG friendly material, but it's going to cost you. Um, so therein lies another tension, another rub, if you will, for I think the average consumer to grapple with. Okay. And I appreciate at the start of the conversation, you did say that focusing solely on electric vehicles was to miss the wider point. But if I was just to fall into that trap momentarily and, uh, <laughs> ask you about tesla and i suppose elon musk uh he has this huge amount of influence he seems very keen to, sh to share his opinion and respond to criticism openly and I, I can imagine this issue has been put to him uh, a number of times now there are a lot of people writing about it you've done you're doing some stellar work in this this area do you know if he's publicly acknowledged this issue or uh, kind of released any assurances about it so Elon Musk has been very open that he is um, very opposed to artisanal mining, to child mining. And, and in fact, he's been working on ways to get cobalt, uh, the percentage of cobalt in Tesla's battery decreased. Um, but the issue broadly even beyond Tesla is that when you just think about the sheer need for batteries, even if you decrease the percentage of cobalt in that battery, the sheer number of batteries increases. And so you can just look at the total volume of cobalt needed. And that's just cobalt. So, so yes, this is an issue that has been very, um, I mean, I want to give credit where credit's due. Elon Musk has been very strong on this issue and saying that he does not support that and wants to end that practice. And I think this is an issue that we can all agree um, is not something that we want to support child, mine, uh, child labor in the mining industry. Um, Elon has um, made steps in other critical mineral spheres. And I chronicle in the book, um, his direct outreach to a small lithium project just outside Charlotte in North Carolina, one of the largest U.S. cities. Um, and I chronicle in the book how that um, misstep basically blew up in Elon Musk's face. And so those details um, are in the book. And then his attempts to um, license a, a novel type of lithium production technology that also blows up in his face. And so, so that's in the book as well. Um, so I would say that there is um, sort of a, a broad mixed record in terms of how Tesla and how Elon Musk have looked at critical minerals procurement, um, but they're sort of not alone. I mean, the whole auto industry, the whole manufacturing base is facing the reality right now that it needs to think through the sourcing of these minerals in a way that they hadn't before. You know, I don't think Ford or General Motors or um, any of these other major manufacturers maybe cared about where the plastic came from in the past that went into a steering wheel, for instance. But now they're actually having to think about where the lithium is going to come from that will go into the batteries that will go inside their electric vehicles. That's a, going all the way to the mine. And the book chronicles how Ford and others uh, made some strategic steps to try to lock down supply and beat their rivals in this new hunt for uh, critical minerals security. 
All right. That's a, that's a very conclusive answer. I wasn't sure how much you'd have to say about Elon Musk with that question. I thought it was a bit left field, but no, it's great. It's just great to know. Uh, I suppose um, in terms of environmental issues, we, the way we think about them in terms of recycling's changed drastically in, in you know in, in the re recent years yeah. i mean I for, I, I for one i think i've got four separate bins now that get collected and for separating <laughs> various various items which i'm I, you know i'm more than happy to do a lot of people are kind of cynical towards recycling a, as a solution to environmental issues they kind of feel that it make doesn't make any difference i'm just wanting to get your opinion on that uh, in general and whether or not there's a sort of recycling solution to yeah. the kind of problems we're facing with uh, these materials yeah, for sure. Definitely. Um, one of the main chapters in, in the book, in the war below, is focused on battery recycling and efforts by two companies in particular, um, Lifecycle, which was founded by this gentleman named AJ Kachar, and Redwood, which was founded by a gentleman named J.B. Straubel, who formerly was at Tesla. Um, and they each have different approaches to the recycling sphere, but they're grappling with what they consider the best ways to grow recycling across North America and Europe and the rest of the world. Um, and so both are trying to advance the concept of what's known as circularity. Um, and this is an idea that at some point in the future, and it's anyone's guess, the um, entire manufacturing supply chain will be able to be repurposed or reused every X number of years. So that is you take an old battery uh, and you're able to basically have it fully recycled, take out the lithium and the copper and the other metals inside and use them to make new batteries or other electronic devices. Now, we know that for the next 30 or 40 years, presumably, we're going to need a lot more what are called virgin metals, that is metals taken out of the ground. And so we're going to need mines. But companies like Apple and others are actively working for a day when they don't buy any more of these critical minerals from mining companies. Um, and, I, and I focus on in the book, Apple's plans uh, to um, basically use these giant robots as part of the recycling supply chain. Um, and so that's chronicled in the war below. Um, but the there's going to need to be a lot of physical growth, not only in terms of recycling centers, um, but also in approaches by consumers to recycling. You know, many people out there have a stash of old cell phones sitting in a drawer somewhere. I mean, I know I do. Guilty as charged. You may, Stephen. Uh, some of the audience may. Um, and, and so, you know, it's going to have to get consumers really into the idea of using those elect old electronics and turning them in to recycle them and then have them be part of that that circular supply chain you know in the united states right now for internal combustion engine vehicles they're powered by lead acid batteries and for more than 50 years it's been very common in the united states to have those lead acid batteries when they're at the end of life you just turn it in and when you buy a new one a small portion of the fee goes to help fund this recycling infrastructure for lead acid batteries and so i would argue and i partly do in the book that having some kind of standardized fee or structure in place to encourage a continuous loop for EV batteries, at least, would help further promote recycling there. So we're not just building these batteries and then throwing them in a landfill, because I don't think that's, nobody wants that. It's a good answer. And you've just reminded me of something there that I, I, I can remember various components of this story. And I'm hoping that you might be able to piece them together for me. If, if, any, if anyone can, I think you're the man for this one. But did I read... A couple of months ago, Microsoft had perhaps announced that they'd use some sort of AI technology to design some sort of Uber Ultimate battery. I don't know if you've heard of this. I've not heard of that, but it wouldn't surprise me. There's some really interesting things being done with AI right now, um, and it's even being used in mining. 
um, right now. And so I, I would not surprise me if, if it's helping on the recycling side as well. Cool. So, I mean, just in terms of what you're, you're, what you're learning and what you found out and what you know about batteries and the, you know, the way we consume energy, I think a lot of people have this kind of utopian thought in their mind or this rather progressive thought that one day we'll somehow stumble across, across the technology to create some miraculous renewable green energy. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on whether you think that is, it is a possibility or whether we're inching closer to it or there are, whether it's really kind of magical thinking at this point. Well, you know, I mean, I, I, I think that there's a lot of scientific attempts out there to get us closer to various types of renewable or permanently renewable fuel sources. Um, I, I think when we look across the landscape right now, where we are, though, I mean, the reality is that lithium ion batteries are the main portable power devices for millions of electronic devices, including electric vehicles and, and yes, leaf blowers. And so what's right in front of us right now and will be for the foreseeable future is the stark need for a lot of these critical minerals. And even when we look at the next generation beyond lithium-ion batteries, it's a type called solid state, um, which is a, a different configuration, but more advanced, that will use even more lithium than a lithium-ion battery. And so even some of the um, nearer-term future technologies are going to require a lot more critical minerals. And so just the stark need for increased supply is laid bare before us. And, and I really wanted to bring that to the reader here with, with this book, with The War Below, because I think we can't just sort of expect that some magical technology will come in the next few years. I mean, what's in front of us right now, and even what's expected in the five or 10 years beyond that, we know we'll need a lot more critical minerals than we have currently on the market. Okay. And this might be a very left field question and it, it relates more to safety than anything that I think you've highlighted. But uh, what is it about lithium batteries, that, I mean, if you know that is, that can make them uh, a danger, a, a kind of uh, safety issue to the point where I believe there's regulations on flights to the size and amount you can take. We've, we see clips of kind of, you know, vaping cigarettes exploding and rechargeable bikes. What makes them so volatile? Well, I mean, lithium is a pretty social creature. Um, it likes to bind with other elements. And, and so that's partially why. Um, it, and it also, it, as, it, because it's used in a battery, you know, it, it can retain a charge. And so that's why, partially why you can just think like a metal that um, likes to move around a lot and, and retain an electrical charge. You can just sort of imagine the, the, um, the kinetics there. And, and so it can, in some cases, um, depending on how a cell is designed or engineered, um, you can have fires or explosions. And you can just imagine if you uh, if you have a small explosion, like in a vape pen, it would be bad, but much worse if it's in, say, a large giant battery, like in an electric vehicle. Um, but I should say that these are rare um, and they're not all that common. I mean, obviously, in an internal combustion engine, you literally sit on a tank of gasoline. Um, so there's, uh, you know, there's, there's trade-offs everywhere. Um, but, but lithium is a very social creature and it just, it loves to be charged. Ernest, this has been a fascinating topic to discuss with you and an important one as well. So I'm glad you're you're banging the drum and, and you're doing a lot of uh, hard work, getting people, you know, making people aware uh, of where our materials come from and what the cost is for that, not only ethically but environmentally. So thank you, first of all. Uh, maybe you could just let our viewers and listeners know where they can find more of your work and writing. Thanks. Great to be with you, Stephen. I appreciate that. So the, the War Below, it's out now in the United States, available everywhere, and then it'll be in the United Kingdom uh, starting in April on April 4th. That's wonderful. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for speaking to us. Great to be with you. Appreciate your time. Anytime. Take care. Here we go. Hello, Brad. Hey, what's up, man? How's it going? 
Yeah, good. Where in the world are you? Uh, I am. Well, the image behind me, that's that's an AI generated image of President Biden smelling Kamala Harris intensely. So I'm not with them. I am in Atlanta, Georgia right now. I should ask you before I might go on a rant. uh, Is swearing allowed on your show? Should I refrain from swearing? No, say what the hell you want. We're on locals and we'll put it on Rumble. I won't go too crazy. Um, yeah, yeah. So say what, what, whatever you want. At least Biden's not sniffing a baby. Well, we don't know what he's doing right this minute. Anyway, <laughs> we, we we know what he'd like to be doing. It is it's Hunter's birthday this week. Did you know that? No, I didn't. Uh, Hunter Biden turned fifty four on February fourth. They celebrated with a a low key dinner at a Beverly Hills restaurant called the Ivy. They were joined by his dead brother's son, the one whose mother. He started banging, you know, right after the kid's dad died. So that was that was very nice. And after the meal and giving Hunter some gifts after dessert, he jerked off on the busboy. And it's it's a piece of artwork. One of Biden's donors bought the busboy and is now an ambassador to Saudi Arabia. But they have no right. idea. They have no idea, though, who did it, though, because all of the purchases of the art are kept secret. It's just a coincidence that they all end up ambassadors. Right, we've got to go over this more slowly. There was too much thought. <laughs> I can be rapid My... fire. Definitely. <laughs> Let's go back to what you said. The, the, who who died? Sorry, the dead. So, Hunter, the the nephew, his uh, Bo Biden, uh, the the good son, I guess, is the way it's framed in the media. The one who died, his son came to Hunter's birthday dinner. Okay. And with President Biden, I'm sure a lot of sniffs went into that head. Probably wore out a little bald spot on the kid's head sniffing it. <laughs> but that is the son of the brother who, after the brother died, Hunter start, started having sex with his brother's wife and that kid's mother. It's just such a weird dynamic in that family. How soon after the death did that happen? You know, they they make it seem like it wasn't going on before, but it certainly seems like it was going on as he was dying. And then the way they reported it happened almost immediately after. And the story is that they were both grieving together. They were losing someone they loved. And, and of course, they fell inside of each other accidentally, and they continued to do it. His brother died, and they were in a relationship for like six months. Then he starts cheating on her with the stripper who he had a kid with that the entire family just despises the existence of and refused to acknowledge. I mean, that was the saddest thing I had ever seen the way they, it's not that kid's fault, you know? And the fact that they refused to acknowledge it, it was disgusting to me and they still called president Biden decent, but yeah, he cheated on his brother's ex-wife who he was sleeping with after his brother died. And then they got into a fight and this is actually when what led to, the gun charges that he got because he was having a conflict with her when he went and bought that gun when he was on drugs and lied about being addicted to drugs. That all happened around the same time. Wow, that has sunk in and I'm speechless. It's a wild, wild story. (laughs) How did it get to this? I mean, where did it all start to become... Not not a normal family? Was it ever a normal family? I think a long time. Actually... I think I've identified the origin of Hunter's problems. That had something been different, 
he might have had a different life. I think that it all stems from the fact that he never got to be the one who dad invited into the shower when he was 14, like his sister did. And he always wondered why he, he, his dad didn't love him enough to molest him like his father molested his sister, which she wrote about in her diary. And nobody ever talks about that, you know. She's All right, never slow down, slow down, slow down again. You're saying that Joe, <laughs> you're saying that Joe Biden. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Molested his own daughter. Well, okay, so I should say I'm implying molesting. The fact that he's okay. showering with 14-year-old girl. And his daughter wrote in her diary that she was messed up sexually because her father used to shower with her when she was 14 years old. This was something that Project Veritas, a little while back, they, they got a hold of her diary and they exposed some of it and they had some audio talking to Ashley Biden herself and she was very angry. She wanted it back, but there's never been a denial about any of it and there's never been a fact check. It seems to be true based on all the reporting and all the evidence out there and it fits perfectly with, I think, what we see from Joe Biden. I mean, he seems like a creepy, creepy guy to me. Not just an old man who's out of it. Like, a creepy guy. Yeah, so I've done a lot of research on the Clintons. Yeah. And it, it, that really opened my eyes was, you know, seeing yeah, yeah. him. He, he was like a serial sexual assault, a cokehead governor of Arkansas. Yeah, His brother man. got busted buying drugs, all that stuff. Um, They're compromises, people. Yeah, so is that, that's what I was getting at. If Clinton was, he was given the White House because he was so corrupt and decadent, is that is it the same for Joe Biden? Is that why he's been given it? I think that that's probably what the way they try and, and control people. I don't think they want someone in there that isn't compromised because that's that's their leverage. These, these people who are kind of outside of government or whether they're the administrative state or whether they're people like Klaus Schwab or, or whoever. I, I just think that for me personally, I don't vote in federal elections. I'll vote locally, but like federal elections, I, I just haven't been inspired to. And, and I feel like once politicians reach a certain level, they might go in with good intentions. Some of them, some of them are just created uh, and put to fill a role specifically. Like they have these training activist schools and Manchurian candidate stuff, but others might go there with good intentions. But once they reach a certain level and get a certain amount of influence, uh, uh, somebody's going to drop something in their drink, uh, take some photos of them doing something inappropriate and, and they're going to be compromised. They're going to use the, What's it called? It's like, I can't remember. It might be MICE, but there's the acronym that the CIA uses to turn people into double spies. And it's all about exploiting their um, their weaknesses with uh, women or, or with men or, or their financial problems or, or whatever attachments they can leverage to gain control over them. And I think there's zero percent chance that they're not aggressively doing that with anybody with a little bit of influence. Yeah, so I got in trouble for talking about Hunter Biden's laptop a while back, and I got in even more trouble for talking about Clinton and Prince Andrew and Epstein. Dude, yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. Did you? What? What? What did you? What did you research I, lead you to in that one? We got kicked off of WSB radio years ago. So I, I was when Trump ran for president in 2016 against Clinton. My presumption going in was that we have a, a family of pedophiles on both sides. And so I went and looked in. I, I, I can't remember what when I first heard about the Jeffrey Epstein thing. I know you've done some work on Jeffrey Epstein, too. But I started reading about Jeffrey Epstein. And then I, I, I 
I just I hate the media and they lie all the time. So I just went straight to the court files and I read like thousands of pages of court documents. I talked to the lawyer of like 10 of the victims and um, I, I read all the depositions. And when I came out uh, of all of that research at the time, uh, Trump looked a lot better than Clinton. OK, nobody looks great. Trump looked a whole hell of a lot better than Clinton. Clinton's behaviors and the situations very hard to explain away. And um, every video I made, it, it would be demonetized. And ultimately, we would talk about this stuff on WSB up until I think it was 2019 when I can't remember Leon Black, maybe it was one of Epstein's buddies who later was busted for like giving him money, bought Comcast cable, which owned WSB. We were gone like two weeks later. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like so crazy <laughs> yeah leon black wasn't it like hundreds of millions that he gave it was a lot of money i think it didn't look good for him but he said you know. he said it was for uh financial advice and tax planning or right yeah that's what she calls sex with the minors <laughs> <laughs> so it was under trump's presidency that a lot of the Epstein stuff was allowed to come out. It seems to me. Yeah. No, go ahead. I want to hear what you had to say. You're like right up my alley here. I love this stuff. It, it just seems to me that more damage was done to the Clintons from it. It was advantageous to let it out under his presidency. And um, now we've got Biden covering it up. We've got Maxwell doing yoga in a soft federal <laughs> right. prison. She's... Prob prob probably Stop. she's going to probably get out on appeal. Probably She's leading a sex trafficking ring in prison. <laughs> she might get out on appeal too. And her brothers are going around giving interviews. Have you seen any of those? No, I've not watched them, but I've heard that, that, that they have been doing so. It's like an organized yeah. press campaign to uh, re rehabilitate her image. Yeah, yeah. She she loves animals and the ocean and all that right. crap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She only has sex with animals. What you said a moment ago, like that, that struck me because, so I have a video pinned to the top of my Twitter that I made in like 2016 before it was okay for the mainstream media to talk about Jeffrey Epstein. Like when we wow. started talking about it, it wasn't okay, but then at a certain point in time, it became okay. And and here's what my view of, of why that was before it was so obviously a Clinton scandal. So they had to bury it. And actually, the video clip that I have at the top of my uh, Twitter page is Brian Stelter uh, of Reliable Sources. You know, who People think he's a bad journalist. He's not a bad journalist. He's a good propagandist is what he is. And he got fired from CNN, but he got a promotion. And he is now working with, I think it's the Stanford Conservatory, where he's working personally with young journalists with, without scrutiny. So he actually has more influence over the future right now. And nobody's watching him. Uh, uh, that's what I don't think we realize about Stelter. He, he, he went up, but he, he's saying in this interview, I think it was Kaylee McEnany before she was Trump's press secretary who brought up Jeffrey Epstein and Clinton's the number of times he'd been on the plane and a few other things. And immediately, as soon as she brought it up, this is the thing they do. Stelter goes, oh, you're not going to start bringing up this Pizzagate fake news. to uh, uh, uh. I mean, they, they just shut it down. They associate it with Pizzagate. So that people are afraid to even look at it and they bury it because had it come out, then Clinton's look awful. Fast forward a little bit. Trump's president, he puts, I think, is uh, Alexander. 
what's the guy's name? One of it, the guy who was the pro, the federal prosecutor in Florida that ended up giving Epstein a sweetheart deal back in Costa. Yes, that's right. Costa, Acosta. So Trump puts him in his cabinet, right? And so now the media can spin it to make it look like it's a Trump scandal, especially with the Clintons out of the limelight. And the way they spun it was, oh, wow, Acosta gives Epstein a sweetheart deal and Trump rewards them by putting him in his cabinet. But the reality of that, if you read the court documents, is that the investigative team, the police, uh, Acosta, they were bullied, harassed, threatened, uh, witnesses uh, uh, dropped out. I think one I think one investigator died and all of the people who the evidence uh, were building the evidence and that they relied on to testify were dropping like flies because of Epstein's goon squad. And it reached a point where Acosta was going to get nothing or he was going to give him this deal. And so it wasn't him helping out his buddy Trump by giving Trump's buddy Epstein something. It was him just trying to get this fucking creep, excuse my language, for something. And I don't know if he's a good guy. He might not be. But that seems clear to me when you read those court documents. But, of course, the media never tells the truth. I love that Alex Jones clip where he's in court. <laughs> he talks oh, about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's great. He's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. So, totally. do you think, you know, we've, we saw the Epstein case in the news again recently. Do you think it's, it's going to keep cycling in and out like that? I think as long as they can make it attached to Trump, I think they will continue to do so. Um, like the Rolodex of issues where they smear him as a, a you know, sex, sex crime like that or the racist. So that's in the Rolodex until a Clinton or somebody else who is on their side or that they like. Uh, is in the spotlight. So, yeah, I think we will keep seeing it. But when Trump gets back in, how's that going to play out then? Well, I, I you know, I, I think that they're going to keep talking about it. I think that because you can associate this with the uh, uh, the E. Jean Carroll thing. So any type of, you know, claim that he committed a sex crime. I don't know if you know much about the E. Jean Carroll claim against him where he was ordered to pay her like 81 million dollars it's the stupidest case you've ever i mean it's such a fraud it's it's unbelievable this woman is crazy as she's a performer and uh, do you know the story behind eugene carroll not to go too no off tell us please so eugene carroll is a woman who this has been in the news the past couple of weeks because they love attaching they love to say that trump hates women and uh i think that can always be brought in and connected with epstein and so E. Jean Carroll is this woman who used to be like a writer on SNL for one season who claims that 27 years ago, and she made this claim after New York changed a law where they suspended the, the statute of limitations for one year. And they did this specifically so people like her could make accusations against Trump that could end up being in the news cycle going into the 2024 election. I mean, that's, that's, exactly why they did it and so of course this woman who is probably recruited by one of these uh, organizations to do this claims that 26 years ago she has no evidence she has no calendar nothing absolutely zero except her word to prove it and it's a civil case it's not criminal and, and so she says that they went to this department store and i can't remember the name of it but it's like i don't know new york city that well but it's on like that the most popular street in new york city where all the christmas displays are in the most visited 
uh, department store in the country, right? And always full. And she says that they Trump took her into this department store, and they were just hanging out, having a good time shopping and joking around for some reason because they ran into each other on the on the street happenstance. They get up to this floor, and for some reason, nobody is there. Like the one time there is zero other people in this department store. And, you know, another coincidence, the, the changing room, which is usually locked when you, when you look at the protocols and you talk to people, you have to go get somebody to unlock it for you. A door is just wide open, just waiting to bring someone in there to get raped, you know? So, so those uh, circumstances, uh, you know, kind of strange, but she says that they go up to that floor. Nobody's around. He pushes her into that room and he rapes her is what she said. And, this was like a, a, a publicity stunt so they could use this narrative. They take it to a civil court and the judge, it's only preponderance of evidence in a civil court, which means 51% have to agree that uh, uh, he's guilty of, of whatever. But the judge instructions to the jury was battery, right? So she accused him of rape and sexual battery and, and battery. And the judge told the jury. So here's what battery is. If you feel that Trump might've poked her with his finger anywhere on her body or like on her chin, then that is liable. He, he is liable. So the range of liability is super, super broad and can be nothing, right? And of course they found him guilty because it'd be hard to say, well, he might've poked her with his face, right? And, and, and so they find, find him liable, but they also disagree. They said they don't believe she was raped. And so the media takes this, right? And the next day, and they're still doing it now. They've been doing it every time they put this woman back in the news. Uh, sexual assault rapist Trump, he was, he was held liable. And this woman goes on to CNN uh, like a year ago, and she's talking to Anderson Cooper about this whole thing. And she starts laughing and giggling and tells Anderson Cooper that rape is sexy. I mean, she's a lunatic. Her, her cat is actually named Vagina. It's I'm thinking about accusing Trump of rape because I'd love $81 million. Wow. I just don't understand how the legal system can be weaponized in that fashion. Dude, it's, yeah. it's a system of injustice. It's not a justice system. It's an injustice system right now. And it's out in the open. It's so in our, like Joe, the Biden family, not just him, but down here in Georgia, we have uh, Fanny Willis. She calls herself Fanny, like she's French. She's not. Her name's Fanny, but she's the corrupt district attorney that is overseeing the, the uh, Trump election interference racketeering trial down here. She hired her top prosecutor she's having sex with. She broke up his marriage, and she, and she hired a guy she's banging. And then this guy, who's being paid with public money, took her on multiple vacations after he hired her using public funds. And she ran in 2020 to be district attorney. And I played this clip the other day. She literally said, Fulton County, Georgia needs a district attorney that is not having sex with their employees and that is not uh, lining their pockets with public funds. And because the previous guy did the same thing and she's openly doing the same thing and everybody hashtagged me too, the previous guy, but now the media, because she is uh, against Trump in this thing. So she's the good guy. If you point out what she has openly admitted, you are racist for doing so. It's so abusive. The, the justice system.
Do you think this stuff has backfired, though, when it comes to Trump? Because it is so transparent what they're doing. It's just increased his popularity. There's like a martyrdom factor. I, I think so. I That's one thing I, you know, I think about that a lot because it seems so obvious that it's going to increase his popularity. Do you think? Like, I, I would think, think they would know that. Yeah. Which makes me wonder. Which, which then lead, <laughs> yeah. leads to another conspiracy theory as well. Yeah, it's yeah, all yeah. intentional right. to, yeah, because anyone that you're gonna go after that vehemently. I mean, even going back to the Russian stuff, the Russian stuff was so preposterous, too, so stupid. I grew up with, you know, in here they were telling us in England the Russians were coming. You got to have a nuclear bomb shelter in your back garden, and yeah. they were always trying to terrify. You know, if you burnt your toast, the Russians did it. It just seems like they fell back on that old ploy and, and tried to tie it to uh, Julian Assange and tried to tie it to Trump. And anything that Putin said. So Putin, I think a couple of weeks ago, he said that the 2020 election there was a fraud which there's fraud in every election so he, he just he stated in uh, a truth about like every election and this is what the media does they they then took that and all, all of a sudden to say there was fraud in the 2020 election is uh carrying water for putin it's a putin talking point yeah you know, nobody can see that on their own it is now you are with putin if you point out what everybody knows have you had a chance to watch has Tucker Carlson published the interview with Putin yet? I don't think so, but that that'll be interesting. It's trending people like forget crazy. Barbara Walters interviewed him too. A lot of people did it. It's trending like crazy right now over here. And the EU is talking about criminalizing and banning Tucker Carlson from um, Europe. I mean, that is wild, man. It's like there's an epidemic because of stuff like that. People see it. There's an epidemic of self-censorship. Because people are afraid to point out the obvious corruption that's in our face for fear of, of being branded like a racist or, or a domestic terrorist and canceled. So when it comes to the weaponization of sexual offenses allegations, have you looked at the cases of Andrew Tay or Russell Brand? I haven't looked deep into those yet. I'd love to hear about them. Though. I know that there was a targeted attack. And for me, it's like... The whole hashtag me too thing, it does a couple of things. One, it treats people, women, it, 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 makes, it makes victimization a subjective thing and throws out all laws, which actually hurts people who've actually been victimized. Like I saw a Washington Post video that had this montage of women telling their stories. And one woman told a story of being brutally raped in an alley. And it was followed up by a woman who told how she was sexually assaulted when somebody squeezed behind her to get by in a crowded bar. I'm like, that's a disservice to the actual woman. And this is going to lead to no actual prosecution. So it's like a double-edged sword there. But what, what, tell me about those two. Well, with Russell Brand, I mean, he's got tens of millions of followers. Yeah. And his activism is centered around exposing Big Pharma and the military-industrial complex. Yeah, I'd say that they're two of his main targets. But he does these videos regularly, and he's so eloquent the way he distills it down yeah. for average, you know, people that I'm, I'm hooked on it. I was watching it a lot, and then all of a sudden, one weekend, these. <laughs> Channel 4 it was, yeah. and the Times said they'd interviewed women from 10, 20 years right. ago. 
Yeah. And, um, you know, he was basically a serial rapist and all this stuff. And um, criminal charges are coming. But, you know, got to hand it to him. He doubled down. He just, I think that was a shot across the bow. And he was like, F you guys. And he, he just went more after them more than he's ever gone after them before in his life speaking about the vaccines and speaking about yeah dude. the wars and all this stuff and um whether they're going to get one of these women to take it into the legal system remains to be seen because it, it is a slow process but again, there's no way they know, will they, they, they don't have they any would. evidence like this whole thing relies on not having to go and put it up to an actual a court of law <laughs> it's court of public opinion that it relies that's why they do these old claims and i, I remember that now when after this story came out the media narrative was uh, um, russell brand has been preparing for this for the past 10 years and they they wove this whole story about how he started to become a right-wing influencer because he knew that these accusations were coming 10 years it's the wildest story that they came up with. And, you know, that documentary on Channel 4, which I thought was the most interesting thing, there was at least one, maybe two, of the women in the documentary that weren't the actual women making the accusation. They were actors hired to play the women in a documentary. That's a little weird. Yeah, for a man who slept with as many women as he has, to go over his entire life history... There's going to be some disgruntled people in there, Bitter. and um, yeah, I hope I, I hope that he doesn't get arrested. And he you're right, he is eloquent there. He's such a good communicator. That's why they're going after him. Yeah, and then Andrew Tate, he was speaking about vaccines and wars and all that kind of stuff as well, and, and something similar happened with him. So it just seems that it used to be the lone gunman would take you out, but yeah. now it's a sexual offense allegation that they use. Yeah, they try to smear your reputation so nobody will listen to you and people will be afraid to associate with you. The the vaccine question, too, that is one that I, uh, I don't know what your position on the vaccine is. My, my position from the get-go was I read the Pfizer documents right when this thing came out. And so my mom had a, a rare illness for 18 years. She, she passed away a few years ago. She was told that she would die in two years when she was first diagnosed years ago. And I learned, I learned watching my dad and my mom that um, you have to, when you get in a situation like that, you have to ask more questions and and you have to uh, figure things out for yourself when the medical establishment that you have learned to trust to help you has given up on you. And uh, they're both an inspiration, but coming into the pandemic, like I I had like a, a background of like questioning this stuff all the time. And so I'm reading all the Pfizer documents and the trials that they did to get their efficacy rate high, 99% efficacy, not 99% efficacy, Dr. Fauci. Dr. Fauci sounds like he eats a bowl of cigarettes for breakfast every morning. <laughs> they only allowed the youngest, healthiest people in these trials, and it's expressly stated in their own documents on their webpage, they excluded the most vulnerable, the pregnant, the older people from these trials because of the risk to them. And then after they did the trials, got the numbers that they could use for propaganda purposes, the very first people they then gave the vaccines to when they rolled them out were the same vulnerable people that they excluded from the trials due to risk. And that to me is just, it's just so, so deceptive and wrong that I told people, look, 
I don't think they're trying to kill people with a vaccine. I know some people think they're trying to kill people. Uh, I believe that they are trying to expedite the development of this mRNA technology that they have long believed to be this life extension technology, and they need human subjects. So they rigged up this uh, testing, and then they just want to give it to as many people as possible as quickly as I mean, they, they did similar stuff with polio. And, and they did similar stuff with, uh, it was one of the bird flus from years ago. They always try and pressure people. And when you go look back years later, it's always a lie. The numbers are always fabricated. And they're full of it. I mean, Fauci is like, Fauci's not really a good dude, you know, in my opinion. Yeah, it seems to me that the medical industrial complex own people like Fauci and the whole thing was just a grab to make billions and billions and billions on something yeah. that, you know, it, it it hadn't been trialed on people. So everybody who took it was a guinea pig. Yep. I mean, I've got a friend and his his mate took it two years ago. He got sick right away and he died a couple of months ago. Yeah. And I also Sorry. follow a channel called Dr. John Campbell. And he's got over a million subs. And in the beginning, he was kind of an advocate for it. And he said, if he knew back then what he knows now, he never would have advocated for the vaccine he never would have took it himself he would never would have recommended it and he's, he's done a lot of videos recently about the excess deaths and they reckon that the excess deaths are, are going to be, exceed the amount of people who died um during the pandemic soon if you look at it's, it it's crazy across the entire world yeah and what they'll never report that what they'll do is they'll say it's hard to determine if it was a vaccine or if they developed covid again that did it i i have a story for you related to that so my, my as i said my mom and dad they would be they, they were going to doctors different type of doctors um like a place called shepherd center at emory here in atlanta a, a fantastic place every single day of the week because because of the disease my mom had was so rare that uh she had to retrain her brain basically it's something called brzezinski cells in your brain uh that control the communications that we have a thought and it just unconsciously goes to our limbs when those die or the, they eliminate that communication apparatus so you're not paraplegic but the, the the connection's not there so you are wheelchair bound and people can think you're paraplegic so the retraining of the brain is what has to happen and so they were going through a process of that for many many years and uh she, she was able to retrain her brain in, in many ways but they were also surrounded by constant pressures and mandates in certain hospitals to get the vaccine and i i wasn't like I said, I, I, I wasn't sure. Like I, I, I just, my recommendation on the show was like, I'm not going to tell anybody what to do. I'm just saying, here's what they did this. They're definitely testing this on people. I want it to work. I'm not going to get it. I, I didn't get it. I want it to work because many of my friends got it. And my parents eventually got it because they had to, to keep going to many of the appointments that they needed to go to. And my dad, after he got the second shot, developed a condition called interstitial lung disease. And I looked it up on Google Scholar, and it was actually one of the few rare diseases that they had identified and acknowledged as being a side effect of the COVID vaccine. And then a month later, his brother, my uncle, got the, developed the exact same condition. It's a terminal condition. They, they're, they, they're both dead. And it's, I mean, it doesn't kill you right away, but it, it scars your lungs and, and you slowly, your lungs slowly lose their ability uh, to work. And so you can slow down 
the uh, spread or the scarring with treatment. So we go to this doctor who originally diagnosed him. And I, I bring, I print out this study that describes my dad to a T. I mean, it was exactly like his circumstances, age, everything. And the reason I did that wasn't to be like vaccine and wave it in their face. That's not why I was doing it. I was doing it because the recommendation for people who developed this was do not get the booster. And I knew that my dad was going to get the booster pushed on him by this guy and many other doctors very soon. That's why I brought it. And so he's there talking about it. And I asked him, you know, what do you, what's the cause of this? And he said, well, you know, you don't, we don't really know. It could be black mold. It could be this. I, I had the house checked for black mold. There was no black mold. All of the other explanations I, I uh, crossed out as the best I could. And the only one I could not was the vaccine. And when my uncle got it, it seemed really, really suspicious. So I, I, I asked this doctor, I say, is it possible that this was vaccine induced? And he flipped out. He, he, it was a visceral reaction. And he asked me if I was vaccinated. That was his response. Are you vaccinated? Are you? And I said, no. And he said, you're going to die. He starts telling me I'm going to die. That it's definitely not the vaccine. And I'm, I'm, I'm saying I'm, this is a study that I found that describes my dad. What do you want me to say? And he goes, oh, if you got a study, then show it to me and I'll look at it. I mean, it's like a 65-year-old man acting like a child. And I said, I do have the study. And I, I pulled it out of my bag and I had the relevant parts highlighted and I show it to him. And, and he like, he looks at it for a second. You know, the cognitive dissonance face people get? Like you could see him short. And, and he flings it back. He flings it back at me and goes, you're going to die if you don't get the vaccine. And so we leave. I mean, it was quite a display and it's embarrassing for the guy. I, I, we're going to get a second opinion. Uh, I told my dad and he was definitely okay with that. And so we go to this other doctor at Emory who, who when I brought it up to her, I said, look, I know I'm not supposed to say this. And she said, Oh, you can say anything. It's okay. And she was super, super cool. And she said, yeah, I've seen some of this. And it was interesting because she was at a hospital that also did not let me in. Just randomly, they would change their rules all of the time. One day we go there. I, I have to go in there to help my dad. And they say, are you vaccinated? And I wasn't going to lie. I'm like, no. And they go, you can't come in. And I, you know, I kind of caused a scene out there. I'm like, you guys have never done this before. And all of a sudden today you're doing it. And I said this to them, in your bathroom, I just went in your bathroom and you had to make sure to wear your mask, make sure to wash your hands, stay uh, how are, six feet away. Uh, um, and then right there on the soap dispenser in your bathroom, it says, sorry, out of soap. How can I follow your rules when you're out of soap in your own bathroom? This is stupid. And then the doctor came out and escorted me in herself. So that was really cool on her uh, um, to not be a dick about it. But people just fell into this trap and they didn't know what they're doing. Like my mom, they'd always check your temperature, you know? And so when people have like, you know, you see people who have conditions that you don't recognize and people don't always know how to communicate with people like that. Cause they feel sorry for them, maybe pity. And my mom was in a wheelchair. Most people had never seen uh, this condition before. And so we would go to the hospital and they would do the uh, temperature scan and they didn't know. Cause my mom had a, a headband to help her, um, Hold, hold her hold, hold her head up and they didn't know where to to scan her and so they would just go uh and then they would from about five feet away i, I remember this happened once they go dude uh 73 you guys are good and i'm like 73 really it, it it they didn't take your temperature they were just trying to follow these rules that were based on nothing and 
you know, a lot of people like really got messed up, but they're still mad about that. There was a big fight at the Libertarian presidential primary. I moderated a few weeks ago over this very thing about whether or not it should be investigated uh, to see uh, a lot of people feel crimes happen. Their, their family members died. And some people are just like, oh, we don't need to look at it. And I, I think that that is like, I think that could be an issue if anybody were running, if DeSantis were to stay in it. I always thought DeSantis should go after Trump for his um, Operation Warp Speed thing, but he didn't really. Um, people are still feeling very angry about all that bullshit. I've rambled for way too long. I apologize. <laughs> no, no, that that's an absolute tragedy, man. My heart goes out to you. And it's state-sanctioned murder as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And you got these uh, psychopaths, sanctimonious, God-complex doctors who think that they know absolutely everything. Yeah. And if you challenge them you know, you're going to die when actually they're the ones killing people because of the lack of mm. information that they've really got. So the, the whole system is completely upside down. And these pharmaceutical companies, the blood on their hands, it's, it's yeah. got to be approaching the blood on the hands of the military, the bomb manufacturers. Yeah, they're the legal drug dealers. They're, 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 they're killing people. Um, I, you know, I don't, they might not all intend to, but I think the people who are kind of um, benefiting the most, I think the Fauci's of the world probably have a pretty good uh, idea about it. I mean, you go in these hospitals and you're right. Uh, the doctors learn one method. Uh, they learn what medical school teaches them to the exclusion of everything else. And the cures for anything that comes across their way is it only reaches the limits of their knowledge. And to them, nothing exists outside of that, right? When in 50 years, there's probably going to be a cure for a lot of things that uh, we don't have treatments for today, yet that kind of escapes them that maybe, just maybe, if you opened your mind and connected with a research institute, this is what I, I used to do because we used to get shut down a lot with things about my mom because I didn't often know what to do. So my dad is a very resourceful guy. You know, he would go find other experts and stuff. And I, I, I say this, if you're ever in a situation where you feel like you're not getting uh, the support, anybody listening, anybody uh, um, from your medical doctor, take what your medical doctor gives you that is helpful. But when they tell you nothing can be done, tell them to go fuck themselves and know that something can be done and ask questions because there is definitely somebody somewhere who's a very smart person researching whatever the condition is that, that you might have or, or whatever you need. And I learned that very quickly because my mom got shut down a lot and I found, so she had a tracheotomy tube and it's very dangerous to get those things changed. And so it, it got to one point where the hospital just wouldn't change it anymore because it wouldn't fit. And I'm like, okay, so she's not going to be able to breathe soon. And so my dad and I, we found somebody at Michigan and Georgia tech who were developing a, a personalized to your anatomy tracheotomy tube. And we connected them to Emory and, and it's stuff like that that don't, people don't realize they can do because we've been taught to rely on the doctor so much, but the doctors are only as good as they're uh, uh, helpful. After that, you got to be your own best advocate and the advocate for your family. Yeah. The medical schools have been co-opted by big pharma. So they're educated in a certain way to further their interests. Yeah. I mean, I wrote a book um, deconstructing the weed laws and there was a guy, a biochemist, and he said, you know, he, he was diagnosed with cancer and all of his training and he'd never come across uh, THC oil. 
and some hippie woman put him onto it and he did st- anyway within a couple of years he was told he was going to die and within a, within a couple of years it, it, it completely gone and and he wow. wrote about it and um yeah. but, but if you look i look back then at, at the reagan administration and bush and what they did was they allowed one university in the whole of america to research the medicinal properties of cannabis and they were only allowed to research negative effects what yeah any other university had to apply to that university to do a study and they were only authorized if they found negative effects so it was just to discredit it yeah that's wild because big pharma didn't want uh, any competitive products and if you go back to the earliest weed laws the pharmaceutical societies of california they didn't want people growing free medicine in their own backyard that's why they made it illegal in the first place yeah, it's just control, man. That makes me think of uh, – I used to play this clip on my show from the Council on Foreign Relations where one of the ladies, I think she was a former CIA agent, is talking about how people who can their own corn, sustainable living people, they're two steps away from white nationalism, domestic terror. <laughs> <laughs> they just yeah. want control over everything. Yeah. Well, let's just – do a bit of um, the bike. Go back to the bikes for a bit because we're almost at the hour. So, what what got you interested in them? When he became president, I you know he always seemed kind of like a putz to me. When he was younger, he you know, spoke a little bit more, uh, you know, with a little less mental uh, problems. I do find it fun, funny the way that they characterize him and the way the propaganda about him works. One of my friends, I do theater, I do comedy and improv and stuff, and. I have a couple of friends who are in the closet, like libertarians or Republicans. They only tell me and then they, you know, they pretend to have they, them pronouns and shit. Otherwise I'm like, dude, drop the pronouns. Because uh, uh, they'll get, they'll get um, ostracized if they openly uh, talk about that. But one of our friends, one of my other friends who is a Republican sent him a video of Joe Biden mumbling and, and just made, blah, 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 making no sense. And my progressive friend responds by saying, dude, he's an old man who has a speech impediment. OK. And I'm like, that is the most propagandized response to, to justify that. But the Biden family, it, honestly, Hunter's a great public relations person because my interest really peaked with all of the crazy stuff that hunter did i mean just completely above the law out in the open uh, um abuse of power no consequences they act like the fact that they're charging him with a gun charge and some tax things which he's not going to be convicted of they act like that shows how fair the justice system is (laughs) yeah you know give me a break And, and i mean i mean the guy Somehow he must have four hands or he must have, I I tell you, I hate to be the secret service agent assigned to him whose job is almost exclusively to film him masturbating on a selfie cam while he smokes crack in a sensory deprivation tank, drinks slits and, and, you know, chalks his own pool cue in there. I I don't want that assignment at all. This is what this guy does. And it's on this laptop. And you, you know what they're doing with that? I, I tell people, do not download the contents of that laptop onto your computer because they're never – you don't know what might in the future be revealed uh, from those images. Hunter Biden is never going to pay the consequences for that. But people who have that downloaded on their computer, you might get some child porn charges brought on you. And they're already bra- they've already brought 
revenge porn uh, uh, cases against people who have showed some of the contents of, of Hunter's laptop. It's wild. Wow. The thing you touched on earlier reminded me of when Roger Clinton got caught buying coke from, from the undercover cop. Yeah. The cop <laughs> knew that if he didn't go public immediately, his superiors would cover it up. So he did go public immediately. And then the Clintons span it to whereby Roger did you know, this sentence. And it shows how justice for everyone, nobody is exempt from right. drug laws. <laughs> yeah, <right>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he, he's, he spends a night in jail and is bailed out. and uh, Equal justice under the law. Give me a break. But they play to the... Them. Yeah, they play. <laughs> Yeah. They, they played a confirmation bias and people's avoidance of cognitive dissonance, and it's it works like a charm. So, what did the Bidens get up to in Ukraine? Well, a lot of influence of uh, the prosecutor. They have the video of him saying he's going to do. That. I mean, that's the obvious thing. They put Hunter on that board of Burisma, and he, he was having these open calls that his dad would pop into that after his dad popped into, I think one of the cases was a Ukrainian after Joe popped into one of these business phone calls, gave gifted Hunter like a $119,000 car or something like that immediately after that. It's just, if you take away the Biden name and you slap this fact pattern on any other person uh, in in the country or in the world, that person there, there's probably documentaries about the corruption and abuse and the abuse of power. This person is probably spending the rest uh, of their life in jail. It, it was, you know, an influence thing. Like Bi- Biden to me has always seemed like the most easily bought politician. I mean, they're all probably pretty easily bought, but he seems so, pretty shameless so, about it. So if the Ukrainians then were buying access to Joe through the sun how were the ukrainians benefiting from that you know that's a good question were they some people say did they have biden compromise getting them in to war or was maybe the other way around maybe hunter was there and the influence was there to ensure this war goes on over there i i believe that this whole war over there, and a lot of people do, has been planned for a long time in 2019. And maybe this was like a way to further that along uh, with the help of Hunter and getting all of these uh, powerful people over there uh, on board. They pledged to be, Zelensky did, which is another wild story. A, a television president, an improbable president, becomes a real improbable president. I mean, give me a break. They pledged to be the first fully digital e-government in 2019 before all of this happened. And, of course, this happens. And what do you need to be a fully digital e-government first in the world? You need your infrastructure completely demolished. So what happens? Well, we give them just enough money and just enough weapons not to defeat Russia, but to continue fighting Russia and to continue having their own infrastructure destroyed. Meanwhile, you have this woman, I can't remember her name, Amanda something, maybe, or Samantha something, Samantha Powers. I think she is Cass Sustine's wife, who was Obama's chief propagandist, and he wrote a 30-page paper when Obama was in office about why conspiracy theorists should be silenced and censored, basically. 
she is the head of the U.S. aid. And she goes on MSNBC and CNN, you know, once every other week or so. And she talks about how the silver lining in the Russia-Ukraine, it's terrible, awful what's happening. They're just destroying the youth of both these nations. But the silver lining is that it has expedited the development of the e-government, the fully digital government, through the DIA app, D-I-I-A, which has so far, at least the last time she was on, over half of Ukrainian citizens have put all of their information fully on this app, and it controls all of the details and everything they must do in their life. And the goal is to get as many of them on there as possible because that is what the future is. And it's a pilot experiment that they are now trying the same thing in, I think, maybe Turkey. They're also trying – they want to expedite this thing around the world. We funded it through like I think $25 million. Um, I think that was the plan all along. Destroy it, test, use it. So I remember a lot of people were talking about the project for the new American century. Do you think that America will try and invade Iran before Trump gets back in? I don't know, man. I hope not. They, I mean, they nothing would surprise me at this point. <laughs> they have the new axis of evil they've already created in the propaganda terms. It feels like they're building towards a global war. It also feels like they're building towards civil war in america like if they actually did put trump in jail or if they killed i don't want anybody to die like i believe in redemption i, I know some people do awful things but like you know I, i'm uh, i'm a tender heart uh, i'm a tender you know even though i can be kind of uh you know a little crazy sometimes mm -hmm. but like i don't want anybody to get hurt i think they're just trying to bring america to a precipice and if they were to kill trump or put him in prison i think that would give them the actual you know, January 6th that they pretend happened the past couple of years. Well, so they might just as well have some kind of fascist dictatorship. Um, yeah. yeah. Kamala, maybe. <laughs> well, Brad, it's been fascinating. I love your energy. I love your <laughs> research. And please tell the viewers where they can find you and support you. Uh, you can find me at propagandafight.com is my website. I'm on Twitter, Freedom Act Radio, YouTube.com slash Brad Binkley, Rumble.com slash The Prop Report, Rockfin.com slash The Prop Report, and I, I believe that's it. Can I ask you a question before we get out of here? Yeah, go for it. What is, what's your opinion on the king? Oh, I'm sorry. I lost your uh, um, audio then. Say it slowly. What's your opinion on the king of England? They announced that he has cancer. What do you think about that? Well, have you read this guy? Let me, um, no, yeah. Uh -oh, what does it say? It says, so bear in mind, this book is an interpretation of Nostradamus and it was published first published in 2006. Uh, last one was 2015. All right. So there's a, there's a page here. It's, it's the subject is the abdication of Charles the third of England. Wow. And and um, it says, and this is from the, the quatrain of Nostradamus 1022, because they disapproved of his divorce, a man who later they considered unworthy, the people will force out the king of the islands, a man will, will replace him who never expected to be king. And the summary here is that King Charles III of England, weary at the persistent attacks on both himself and his second wife in the 25 years since the death of his first wife, Princess Diana, 
decides to abdicate in favor of Prince William. So a lot of people think this prophecy wow. is being fulfilled because, yeah. you know, if, if, he, if he's got the big C, the public are going to fully understand and sympathize with him yep. as to him wanting to just step down and hand that over to William. You know, I, I think he's going to advocate too. I, like the, the way they're telling the story makes it seem like he's going to die. Because they don't do that. Like I was reading how King George, his grandfather, they didn't only hide his uh, illness once he was about to die from the public. They hid it from him. They didn't tell him that he was about to die. And it's like, why are they telling the public now? And then the way they uh, report it where they said he doesn't have prostate cancer, but he's got some cancer. We're not going to tell you what it is. And we're not going to tell you what stage it is. And apparently the reason they told the public this is because the king wanted to uh, you know, squash speculation. Well, that's a hell of a way to squash speculation by being <laughs> that vague there. And I, I, I think he's going to advocate too. I think that another reason that's interesting that that's what that look says. I think another reason that they might be doing that is because I think that he would agree to do something like this to show his uh, um, illness and to step down if he were made the hero, as you uh, uh, suggested there, kind of of this narrative. And I think he's the hero of this narrative by showing old leaders like Trump and Biden that a real man steps down and lets the younger generation take over. And you also should abdicate your throne of the Republican and Democrat Party, maybe some other old leaders around the world, and they make him the model of knowing when to call it quits. Yeah, and there's a lot of speculation here about um, Harry as well because Harry came yeah. briefly and went right back. William didn't talk to him, and it's he, he already went back. He's already back, and it's strange because the average family, if the kids were beefing, and the dad it was announced had cancer they come together to boost the dad. Yeah, yeah. But something really weird is going on in this family. He's pussy whipped by old Markle. <laughs> you know the story about how he, why he did not get home in time to see the queen before she died. No. He was insisting on bringing Megan with him. Like I thought maybe he'd stuff Megan in a suitcase this time and tell her to shut the hell up. So they don't both get thrown out of the plane, but nobody wanted Megan on the plane. And, so the plane carrying his brother and I guess Prince Andrew, his uncle, they just decided to leave him. Like, like they, they made the decision. They, they would rather be responsible for causing their brother and nephew to not get home to see their grandma before she died than they would ride on an airplane with Meghan Markle for 10 hours. Wow. Yeah, we've interviewed uh, Meghan's, some of her family members, her brother, um, sister, and they believe that she's a malignant narcissist. Wow. Yeah. 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 Interesting. All right, Brad. Thanks, thank man. you again, then. And uh, love to have a chat with you again. And you have a great rest of your day in the States. Thank you for having me. I'd love to have you on my show sometime as well, too. Give me a shout. I've written books about Epstein. I've written a series of them. I've written a book about Jimmy Savile recently as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, All man. Right. Here's my friend. Later. Take care. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. What a fantastic guest. Absolutely loved his enthusiasm for going after these shape-shifting, paedophile, parasite, new world order fucks. 
So power to Brad. I'm going to tell Ash, he was a great guest, would love to get him back. And for everybody who's been watching this evening, I hope you've enjoyed it. We're going to be back on Friday night with the Royal Mess. And then on Sunday night, we've got the True Crime podcast with an ex-cop who's got some extremely harrowing stories. So take care wherever you are in the world. Unleash will be back again on Wednesday. And hope to see some of you then. Thanks to Stephen Knight and thanks to Ash also for coordinating the show. Cheers, everyone.